I just get it out of the way. Let's just start right off the bat. It's uh, it's a big day for you. Yes. Today, yeah, absolutely. Today you announced you're going solo. Uh, yeah. With uh, a YouTube channel, you're you're leaving iMore. You've been there 11 years. That's it's yeah. Uh, I I you gave me a heads up about a week ago. Uh, yeah. you know, sort of knew you had an inkling, but tell me more. What what, what are your thoughts behind this? I, it, it, what what what's what's going on? Well, I mean, I'm more back when I first joined that it was still phone different and it was run by a very small network of people and it just it kept growing and it became Mobile Nations. And then a year ago, it was bought by Future PLC, which is one of the biggest companies in media. They own everything like a Nantech and Tom's Guide and Tech Radar and just almost every site you can imagine. Uh, and it became like a grown-up big company. And I'd worked in grown-up big companies before. And I, I had just sort of come to really appreciate the smaller uh, environment. And everyone was doing great. Lori Gill had taken over iMore on a day-to-day basis, and she was just knocking it out of the park. And Al Sacco had taken over a lot of what I used to do around the network, and he was just so good at it that it felt like a year after the purchase, everything was solid. Uh, I didn't feel guilty about leaving everyone in the lurch. And after watching like you and Dalrymple and Snell just walking into events and you know doing exactly what you wanted to do at them and not have to worry about all the, the things that happen when you're on somebody else's dime, I just thought, yeah, now is the time. And if I don't do it now, I'll wake up and in 10 years, I'll still be, I'll probably be part of an even bigger company by then. <laughs> I think it's probably surprising and I'm, just it it's it's good to be busy amidst yeah. all of the world's craziness uh right now and i feel like i'm busier than ever you're obviously way busier than ever now that you've got all of this going on but just trying to catch up a little bit today after you went public with this and all of the well wishes and everything one thing yeah. that i that caught my eye is that it surprised some people that 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 you were just an employee of iMore. You know what I mean? Yeah. That, and I know that you're not weren't just an employee. You're the editor and you're the certainly the biggest name there and that, you know, you've you've been there forever and not forever, but eleven years is <laughs> a long time ago. What was the name of the site originally? I don't even remember that. It was phone different and then the iPhone blog and then Tippy and then iMore. I don't remember any of those names. Yes. <laughs> but that is interesting. Now and again, what is the name of the parent company? It was mobile. Na- it was first smartphone experts, and then it became Mobile Nations, and now it was bought by Future, which is just an enormous British media conglomerate. Right, and and again, those really are. I mean, I don't think people realize how. I don't even know if I realize, and I'm in the racket. How consolidated they've gotten in terms of geek, uh, buying top tier yeah. independent publications and non tech. Absolutely yeah. great site. Yeah. Uh, Tom's hardware or Tom's it, what? Tom's guide laptop. Tom's guide, them, yeah. n- right? But again, a, a truly a great site with a long history, a terrific reputation. Um, you know, I'll put iMore on the list. You know, it's obviously been there uh, for a long time under that name, yeah. and in terms of covering just the day to day Apple beat, it's it's up there. I mean, it's current news cycle of the. COVID-19 aside, the media world has already been its in tremendous uncertainty for career media professionals. Uh, whatever your beat, whether you're in tech or politics or 
music, entertainment, you name it, anywhere where there's journalism to be written and read and consumed and watched and listened to, it's as uncertain as it's ever been in terms of where the opportunities are for people as a career. I know Dan Fromer, frequent guest uh, now at, you know, running his own thing, you know, which is a theme, <laughs> running his own thing mm-hmm. at the New Consumer, which is doing great. And he's had some yeah. great pieces this week on communication between companies and their customers and their email lists in terms of what to do, you know, amidst all of this. And boy, there are a lot of companies who are not, not, Botching it, but just sort of wasting. I, I mean, every it's 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 become a, a almost a canard at this point. It's a cliche. People publishing, you know, like screenshots of the downright goofy emails they're getting from companies. Yes. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like you bought a backpack from some company seven years ago, and, yep. and you're getting a stay safe email from the CEO. Yep, absolutely. But but Dan pointed out, Dan Fromer pointed out a, a while back that boy, an awful lot of the talent right now is getting subsumed by the truly biggest names: New York Times Company, the Wall Street Journal, yes, a handful of the true long-standing generations old. In some cases, like with the Times and the Wall Street Journal, you know, over you know, hundred of over a hundred years of, of history and culture are suddenly, a, you know, hiring an awful lot of talent. And then in our particular racket, the Apple beat Apple, yes. <laughs> Apple has hired an awful lot of the people who the best and yeah, brightest absolutely. of our colleagues and former colleagues, you know, uh, like three, or three of mine. <laughs> right. I mean, a long time, frequent, former guest of the show serenity caldwell yep. <laughs> now at apple <laughs> you know not, again not a complaint just an observation and and just sort of the way the world is breaking but it's fascinating to me and and i know dan talked about it and it's just it's fascinating to me that as much as you you, you can you can start to get depressed not that apple's a bad place to work or the new york times is a bad place to work the opposite those are you know great yeah. companies doing great work joanna stern now the the personal technology columnist at the yes. wall street journal truly doing a fantastic job one of my dear friends a fantastic guest on this show but it, it, you know just her last couple of weeks of the stuff she's been doing and the videos she's producing from home just knocking it out of the park yeah. um but I, it's just fascinating to me. You, you, it can be depressing, though, to think that that's the only way to go, is to go to these biggest of the big names. And to me, it's exciting when, like, Dan starts The New Consumer, and now you are starting a brand-new YouTube channel from start. It's exciting to me that the exact opposite of the biggest of the big, something a little bit more along the lines of what I do, like, hey, one yeah. person, <laughs> here I am. Yeah, I think there's I think there's pros and cons to both, and I've done you know I've done the big the, the small to big media thing for a decade now, and everyone has its advantages and its disadvantages, and the ability I, I watch what you do and what Jim does and what Jason does and what Marquez Brownlee, for example, is another really good independent. And there's a bunch mm-hmm. of independent people who do podcasting, you know, like the Relay FM people yeah. and the YouTubers, and it's just it's a very different voice it's hard it's more liberating in some ways because you can literally do anything you want there's no corporate policies or guidelines or lanes that you have to stay in but also you're taking on all the risk and there's no sort of safety net there if you get it wrong 
Right. And there's, you know, strength in numbers um, yeah. in some ways. And, you know, Relay is a great example of that where Relay is more of a, a federation of independent solo talents who are collectively working just to benefit from things like a unified CMS and the way that they can launch new shows and kind of get off the ground a little quicker with the help of the others. And, you know, and there's a whole bunch of people who have relay shows who are good pals and bounce around each other's shows, etc. cetera. Um, as opposed to, uh, you know, Mike Hurley building a, a giant conglomerate and hiring yes. all these people. And again, that wouldn't be bad either. You know, it's not, you know, there's nothing wrong with getting a full-time job at a place, but it's, that's not what relay is. And it's, uh, you know, even at my scale, you know, I don't sell the sponsorships for this show yeah. by myself. Uh, Jesse Char at neat.fm does, and she also handles the sales for ATP. And so there's a little, it's like almost, you know, you as a, those of you listening, you don't really have to know it, but it's sort of like a little two show network with me and ATP with Jesse handling that and taking an awful lot of stuff that I. That I was terrible at on my own, off my shoulders. Yeah, no, it's a similar for me because you know I've been working with mutual friend Dave Whiskus's standard. Uh, Never heard of him. For a, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and, and it's terrific. Yeah, it's it's right. not like Relay. It's it's just, right. it's really a bunch of independent creators, primarily YouTubers. Right. But you know, Thomas Frank was very kind to help me out this week, and I was he had me on one of his videos, and we go back and forth, and just the amount of knowledge that you get from having a network of people who yeah. you get to talk with and work with is absolutely invaluable. It does seem to me that part of the way that the internet continues to as a whole resist cementing it is still liquid overall just the entire if you zoom out you know the entire quote-unquote internet it still isn't solidified as say oh here's how you do media here's how you become a, a publication on the internet and one of the ways that the whole world is still in flux and it just seems so counter like when i think back to like the 90s just go back you know 20 years 25 years and what would have been the most likely to support solo artists or very very small teams of content producers you would have thought video would be the hardest of all because yeah. it is it's the meta art form right that you know, that's why I always can, I, I consider movies to be the highest form of art because movies contain all other art. You know, the, the storytelling and character development of fiction, of printed fiction, like novels, that's part of movie making. The acting of theater and the way that good actors actually can just bring a character to life and, and, own the character, you know, take it from the author and, and just sort of do something to, you know, yeah, everybody knows, you know, bring it to life. Yeah. Bring it to life. And it, it's photography, right? Whatever photography is, cinematography is it okay. plus motion. And then there's the art of cinema itself, the way that you cut 
and frame and yeah. time and pace. And of course, music is a huge part of movie yeah. making, right? It's all of these art forms at once. And therefore, that's why, <laughs> as those, like, it's just idly occurred to me as I've been watching an awful lot more yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> video content recently, how long the credits are. <laughs> At the end yeah. of all of these productions. And it's like, you know, I know that like Netflix and other services, you know, uh, like default to like sort of pushing you on to the next episode. But it's like, I was just paused last night, just on a TV, not even a movie, but a TV show. We're watching uh, Ozark season three. And just how, like when they get to the point where they're like, hey, go to, go to episode three, just how much, how long the credits are. <laughs> it's, it, it's no surprise. Anyway. Yeah. It just seems crazy to me in some sense that an awful lot of the people who are doing the having the most success as solo creatives on the internet are the video people, the you know, people on YouTube like uh like you said, Marquez Brownlee. Yeah. Um, I mean the list goes on and on and on, and you actually the whole list is in your video <laughs> today <laughs> announcing it. Uh uh, Justina Zarek, uh, yeah. aka I Justine, who's been doing this for a long time. I mean, the list goes on, but um, it just seems crazy to me. And you're well, obviously on that list. Credit to a lot of that is credit to YouTube because they didn't just make like a hosting. Well, the thing with podcasts is they're great, but if I watch the talk show at WWDC, nothing suggests ATP at WWDC or. Right. Uh, download at WWDC. I'm stuck within that show where YouTube, if I watch Marquez's video, I'll get, it'll suggest Justine's video to me and then a bunch of other things. And that decomposition down to the, the show level, I think, is what let iTunes really take off. And I mm. think that's, that's what's let YouTube really build uh, an audience generation machine almost. Yeah. And it, I, I've, I'm as guilty as anybody of complaining about the failings of YouTube's suggestion yeah. algorithm uh, and emphasizing those and not appreciating and just taking a step back to, to just appreciate the way that I personally benefit from it and stumble upon videos that I never would have found on my yeah. own because I started watching A and suggested B and I enjoyed B and then I got C and C was even better, really good. And it's like, wow, never even heard of this person. Never would have gotten here. The suggest, yes. you know, the algorithm works. Um, and, and that's true. It's both, and, and it is when it works, it is, uh, I know that it's overused phrase, but it's win, 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 right? It yeah, is, yeah. it is a win for the viewer. If you're actually, if it is actually suggesting to you stuff that you A, enjoy, and especially B, wouldn't have found otherwise, right? That's the magic of the algorithm. Yeah. It is great for the creators who are successfully getting an audience that is appropriate for what they've created, including new people and new channels that new, you know, that it's not too late. Oh, YouTube has already got it, yeah. 20 billion views uh, a day and it's so many successful channels and it's, you know, it's absolutely positively not too late to start. Um, and I part of the, who said it, 
it might have been Roberto Blake, but he said, like, YouTube doesn't find audiences for videos. They find videos for their audience. Right. And that either really entertains their audience or it leads to tabloids, which is the dark side right. of it. Because, you know, people will look at tabloids at the, kitchen, at the uh, yeah. checkout counter. Right. That's, that's why they put them there. And they'll do the same thing on YouTube. But at its best, anything you want to learn, you can start finding videos on YouTube and it'll recommend better and more and better them over time. Yeah. Uh, and you know, and the last of the win-win-win is it's good for YouTube, right? It yes. you know, uh, people watch a lot of YouTube for for good reason. So anyway, that here that's you know, I guess the last, you know, not last, but I don't want to spend the whole time. And I know, I know yep. you, I know you so well. You don't want to spend the whole show talking about yourself. <laughs> You're probably dying right now. You're probably broken out in a flop sweat. Canadian hives, yeah, Canadian <laughs> hives. I'm the same way. I've got the Catholic upbringing. I, it's. <laughs> You know, pride is a sin. Um, yeah. But I'm curious, uh, A, why YouTube first? And B, what you're planned? And I know that other people are asking this, is what else are, are you planning? And are you willing to talk about your other plans other than your, your YouTube channel? Which I should mention, yeah, by the way, is just your name, Renee Ritchie. So go to YouTube, search for Renee Ritchie, and there's, boom, your new channel. I think the search is broken, but if you do like YouTube slash Renee Ritchie, it works now. Yeah. I think the search still shows the old channel, but we'll see how long that takes. To well, Google propagation is terrible. Google will get good at search someday. <laughs> One day. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, so I started with YouTube for almost exactly the reasons that you said. It's it's almost the hardest of the things to start with, and it has the most complexity and the most moving parts. And I figured if I start with just one thing, because YouTube has that audience generation capabilities, uh, and I do it, you know, okay, I can I can use that to build back up again because everything I had before uh, is just belongs to future. So I'm starting off from scratch, and it's hard to build a website on Google these days. Like I have a website. I went with ReneeRitchie.net because like, you know, DaringFireball.net, that's just what you do as a human. <laughs> and uh, I have the, the YouTube channel. Uh, and eventually I do want to start a new podcast. Uh, and I want to try and do some other kind. I bought all this equipment for YouTube and I want to maybe try some documentaries or something a yeah. little bit more um, long form. And it, But I, I want to be very careful not to bite off more than I can chew at the beginning, because just doing one thing well, I think, is the best way to start over. It, part of it, too, is, is in addition to the internet, the computerization of everything. And I feel like it's one of the recurring themes of my work now spanning over a decade. Um, and it's so easy to get lost when you're focused on the week-to-week, month-to-month news cycle, but so clearly obvious when you take a, a bigger picture and start looking at years, is in addition to the internetification of everything, the computerization of everything yeah. is such an overarching trend of our lifetimes, you know, Um Everything's a computer nowadays, for better often, for worse often. You know, it's a mixed bag like anything, and it's, you know, it is what you make of it. But, you know, Apple Watch is no better example. It's a full-on Unix computer running (laughs) on your wrist. (laughs) Well, it's that thing the PC guys won't just walk in here and figure it out, but it turns out. Right. It's so true, really. And, you know, I often have said, and I realize that, you know, that was the... uh, the phrase from the Palm CEO, what was his yes, name? Uh, Ed Colligan. Ed Colligan. And Palm was obviously a computer company. They made, uh, you know, the 
the old Palm OS, not even talking about web OS, but the old Palm OS yeah. was obviously a personal computing device. Um, and there were other, you know, uh, but it, it, to me, the key insight that the iPhone team at Apple had with the iPhone, even though there were other, clearly, technically, this is a computer running as a phone, they were still approaching it as a consumer electronics product. And that consumer electronics were trying to get more computery, while at the same time, computers from computer companies were trying to get more consumer electronic-y. And that is a... It's almost impossible for consumer electronics trying to get more computery to even... It's like a sandcastle standing against the tide, you know, at at the beach in terms of the inevitability of computers becoming more consumer electronic-y. Yeah, we saw that with Palm, which was a PDA operating system. BlackBerry had a Java-based operating system. Windows had Windows CE on phones at the time. And it was Linux through Android and Unix through the iPhone that got pushed down into into small computing forms. Well, I just think that, and I think that part of that is what is really enabled in, in terms of like, uh, it, it, just camera technology is really what's enabled solo and small team artists to produce truly excellent the highest quality video content you know when yeah. you when you watch i justine and you watch marquez and you watch your videos the sound is great and the lighting is good and the pacing is good and it's it and it's funny it, it is an interesting contrast right now in the here and now as the real quote unquote real TV industry is massively disrupted by yes. these uh you know stay at home rules with COVID nineteen. I watch I, I'm a huge fan of the John Oliver show on uh, yes. this week this week last week tonight on uh on HBO. And unlike a lot of shows, he hasn't missed one. Two weeks ago they filmed like just in front of a sort of a Johnny Ive white yeah. what do you call it? A white universe uh <laughs> you know that yeah whatever a universe whatever apple commercials don't really take place in that universe anymore but they used to uh i used to think of it as like the universe where volkswagens and apple products live you know this in, <laughs> the white room yeah the infinite white expanse um and it it was like at the last minute they realized they couldn't have their regular studio and the regular student certainly not studio audience but even their studio they couldn't even shoot it without their audience in the studio because they shoot uh, even though it's an HBO show, they shoot in the CBS building in New York. And at the time, you know, 10 days ago, 11 days ago, a couple of employees of CBS News tested positive for yeah. COVID-19. So they had to shut the whole building down. And so like, at the last minute, they had to shoot somewhere else. And then the show that just aired last night uh, was shot <laughs> in John Oliver's house. <laughs> Unlike some of the shows where they're sort of embracing it and just sort of shooting with actual, you know, like, just webcams like and, their iPhones. <laughs> yeah, their iPhones and it's just, you know, typical FaceTime quality except that it's, you know, um it's Seth Meyers. <laughs> yeah, it's Seth Meyers or it's uh, uh Stephen Colbert in the bathtub yeah. or something like that. Uh they did their best and it's good. It was a good show um with John Oliver and it was very funny. I, I highly recommend it. I guess I should put a link in the show notes. It's, it's really terrific. good. Ter- it's terrific every week. I thought that this one in particular was especially good. And it's it, it, without changing the pace of the show too much, 
it's so fascinating to me that he's so good at it that he can do it without the audience, even though he's telling yeah. jokes. Like, man, that is hard. And like he even said, like he didn't even have anybody helping him out. It's just him in a room with a white backdrop behind him, telling jokes that nobody can laugh at. Yeah. And, and his explanation zero return energy. Right. His explanation was that. He, he grew. He he became a stand-up in Britain, so he's yes. <laughs> fully aware of what it's like to do stand-up comedy without a single sound from the audience. Um, oh, accurate. But anyway, the thing that got me, it's an HBO show. It's been on for years, and he's doing it by himself, and the sound was nowhere near as good as the typical YouTube channel I listen to. Yeah. But anyway, that's a long way of me saying it blows me away that what, like, you do and Marquez does and what Justine does on a multiple time a week basis has an, a better production quality value than an HBO show. Now I yeah. bet that next week's show will improve on that, right? They're going to learn fast yes. and they are pros, but it just, it, it just blow blew me away. What in the, in between laughter of watching the actual show and listening to them, it just blew me away at that meta level that, you know, this is not as good as most YouTube channels. And it's I think Seth Meyer was the one who, le- who he leaned into it earlier when he said, I realize that what I'm doing right now is worse than what my teenage daughter is doing <laughs> on TikTok upstairs. <laughs> yeah, it's really, really fascinating. And I feel like the computerization of everything really uh, helps in terms of allowing, you know, one person like you, like now you yeah. are, you know, a professional videographer, sound person, lighting person, yeah, editor. And ironically, I learned these skills by watching a ton of YouTube videos from people who tried to learn them before me. <laughs> you know what? I do have to say, I, it's great. There are certain things that having how-tos on YouTube, it's great yeah. because you kind of have to see it. But it it's so overwhelming in terms of when you when you search the web for how do I blank, how many of yeah. the answers come up as YouTubes. And it's frustrating because there's a lot of them where I just want the goddamn answer. You know, yes. and having, you know, and if it was in print on a web page, I could find it. And because it's a video, you can't. And even if it's a two minute video, it feels like the slowest thing. Yeah. It, it feels some, in some ways, like going back to the dial up modem internet where just loading the web page took over a minute. And you're like, it's because you have no ability to really scan. Like right. you, you can scan through the timeline, and it's slightly better than just pure audio, where you can't even see where you're going uh, through a timeline. But for things like cooking and things that are highly visual, I find it invaluable. But for other things like you, I just I would just like a set of steps on a nice text page. Yeah, and you know, and and again, some of the stuff, uh, even if it's visual, it still would be better with a photograph, or it'd be just yes. as good, and then it would be scannable. In other words, here's the here's the thing in the toilet you're looking for. Lift this up. That's how you fix it. Like I could watch Elton Brown all day, but not everyone is Elton Brown. No. All right. Rest of the show, special yes. show, Q and A, taken from readers. We got a bunch of questions. I feel like we can easily fill the show. My thanks to everybody who sent questions. I don't know that we'll get to all of them, even all the good ones. I know you flagged a couple. Yeah. Hopefully it'll be fun and a nice little break from uh, the monotony. Before we get started on the questions, though, let me ask you, what are your thoughts on the, uh, la- the the two new hardware products we've gotten recently, the MacBook Air and the iPad Pro? 
so I think they're very different. I think the iPad Pro mostly exists so that Apple could get LiDAR scanners into the hands of developers before the iPhone gets it. Because I think if the iPhone got it first, the paucity, like, like the complete lack of software that really takes advantage of it would they get beaten over the head with it, and rightly so, for weeks. Where this way, that's, that scanner gets put into the iPad. People who really want it uh, can go get it. They can develop apps for it. They can work on the technology for it. And then by the time the iPhone comes out, it's it's much better. It's much better positioned to actually have interesting features, including what I imagine is going to be Apple's new camera app, uh, their AR camera app, which we've been hearing about for years, and maybe something cool with Maps. Uh, I've you know I know people make fun of Memoji, but it was an incredible, incredibly successful way of really boiling the water, getting people comfortable with having themselves sort of with AR avatars, which is not something everyone would have been agreeable to otherwise. It just let them play around with it. And that's that's what we need when AR starts going to the back of the camera as well. So like I don't I, I think when people talk about should you upgrade from the twenty eighteen to twenty twenty it's sort of missing the mark because even Apple doesn't expect that. They they usually see, I think, people upgrading iPads every three to five years. So if you've got a really old iPad and you want six gigabytes of RAM or you're ready for the new design or something, they want you to be able to get the best one at any possible time. They don't want you to have yeah. to have like a two-year-old iPad when you buy a new one. But at the same time, I really think this is the most developer-centric iPad that Apple has ever launched. Um, I think that's a good way to put it. I definitely I, – I've long thought that that is the total explanation for the weird overall like quarter-by-quarter quarter sales cycle of iPad where when the iPad first came out, it was growth, 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 faster growth. And yeah. it, it, even though it only came out three years after the iPhone – it was like, oh, in the iPad's first half year was higher sales than the iPhone. Its first year were faster. It was faster growth than, you know, shifted by three years than the iPhone for a while. Peaked at around 20 million a quarter, I believe, um, and then started shrinking consistently, but then leveled off at like, you know, yeah. nine, 10 million a quarter, which is good. And my, ballpark just elevator pitch what the hell happened what explains that uh is that the ipad debuted in a world without anything like an ipad yeah was uh, filled the need that nobody knew we had people raced to get them the the whole it's just a big iphone gave millions tens of millions of people who had and maybe were skeptical when they got the iphone but then grew to love it and thought well this is fantastic i already know how to use it i can't wait to get one then they got one and it just kept working and working and working and the upgrade cycle was so long is so long still is that it's the overall sales started tapering off because people still had iPads that were great, even though they yeah. were three, four, five years old. And then they've leveled yeah. off at this point because it's like it it's old enough it's old enough platform now that it's just sort of like here's the equilibrium. Yeah, it's much more Mac-like. And phones are becoming that way too, but it's no longer uh, the early adoption part of the curve. It's now really mainstream. You know, If Apple had called it Special Developer Edition, I think it would have been more appropriate. They might have even sold more <laughs> by putting that sort of a name on it. But it really is one of those products that for a number of reasons I think we'll look back on 
Um, and I hate to jump around, but there was a time when they had the iPad 3 out. It was a first attempt at getting Retina, and it had that very hot uh, GPU in it. And they replaced it six months later with uh, with the a, the uh, iPad 4 right. that just smoothed everything back out again. And I think they learned from that, and they just didn't, maybe not all of these things were ready when the last iPad Pro came out, but they don't want to wait until next year again when they have things like mini LED screens. Right. They want to have a good version of the iPad now. And the production of those chips, I know some people were complaining that the chipset is essentially the same, but the binning on those chips is much better now. And yeah. it's just a better overall product for people who want one now. Yeah, I think that that got... It, again, I'm not a silicon expert insider, but it just the layperson's under, uh, understanding of it, it kind of makes sense where it where it comes to yields. And yeah. so, you know, I think people heard that news that the A12Z is basically the same as the A12X, except instead of having seven GPU cores, it has eight GPU yeah. cores. But the A12X has eight GPU cores. It's just that one's disabled. People hear that and they think it was just pure spite and that yes. Apple disabled a core and that they could issue a patch and you're... 2018 yeah, no. iPad Pro could have a new, you know, could then be an A12Z, and it doesn't work like that. It's basically no. if you make eight cores and then they come down the line and you only have to make sure that seven of them pass all the tests, you get a way higher percentage yes. of the wafers that are like, good to go, good to go, good to go. And two years later, I guess 18 months later, 18 months of X muscle memory and expertise at making these all of a sudden the yields are high enough where we can say you know what all eight will 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 hold out for all eight of them you know that that's progress right that's what happens when you make the same thing for 18 months i forget which one it is but there was an apple tv where the chip was essentially uh a6 or something where one of the cores where only one of the cores worked so they had a single yeah. A single core version of the chip, and then later when they ran out of those, they had to start making single core versions, and then they eventually went to a newer Apple TV. But that—that's just the realities of making silicon in anything approaching an affordable way. Yeah. Uh, editor of the show, we can start with the first question. Caleb Sexton uh, has a question, so I'll, it, as the editor, I might as well let him go first. Yep. Um, he thinks lidar and the U1, which is also new in the new iPad Pro. Yes, I believe. Uh, now, the U1 is the ultra-wideband chip that debuted in the iPhones 11 back in September, which is ostensibly for hyper-precise location, but at the moment isn't really used for anything other than helping to increase the accuracy of uh, uh not airplay, what do you call it? Yeah, air, air, yeah like you targeted airdrop. Airdrop, airdrop yeah. right. And so if I want to airdrop you a link or something and your phone is out and mine's out and we're right next to each other, it's going to prioritize, hey, so you know, why don't you send it to Renee's iPhone? Yeah. Um, so I'm not going to say it's sitting there inert. It is being used. But the potential for what something like the UN could be used for and might be used for in the plans for iOS 14 or something in the future is obviously bright. So Caleb wants to know if if he, we see LiDAR and U1 as being intended for Find My. I'm not sure about how lot. I guess it could. I guess what he's getting at is, let's say, 
I think what he's getting at is let's say you've lost your, you don't know where your iPhone is and it's yeah. behind a couch cushion um, and you're using your iPad to find it. The LiDAR, I guess I could help because if you're pointing it, if you're in your, if it's like, oh, it's in your living room and then the LiDAR can tell there's a couch there, it can even, you know, it can really get good about, it's not just, it oh. It can show you a ghost of your iPhone behind the cushion. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, that would be pretty cool. I, I I believe that that it's in in you know that getting better and smarter about finding everything is is in the works. And I know, um, you know, uh, there's there's a short list, there's a long list of rumored Apple products that who knows, you know, like let's put the yeah. car let's put the car on that list, you know. Yeah. Well, who knows where the hell that that is? We know there's people working on Project Titan, and it's a big team, and they have big goals and. Who knows if it's at this point if it's a car or an R two D two that's gonna yes <laughs> come around your house and, and both vacuum and play music like yeah, the like Apple a, Robovac yeah <laughs> um, but then there's stuff like the tile product that seemingly yeah. is close to and you know I don't think that it's like oh if not for this global pandemic they would have announced it at the end of March. But maybe, who knows? I, yeah. I don't know. You know, they, they've, you know, Apple. It would have been a good iPhone 9, you know, one-two punch the way right. the AirPods were with the iPhone 7. Right. And then they could have, yeah, because then it could have, they could have demoed the iPhone 9, yeah. a.k.a. the SE2, but let's call it the iPhone 9, doing something in a demo that couldn't have been shown before, right? Like, Because how else do you yeah. demo this phone that otherwise has nothing but, yes. you know, uh, a chip and a display and a touch ID sensor and this and that that are all nothing is new. The whole point is just it's a great phone with a modern chip that sells for five hundred and fifty dollars. Yeah. Um, but if you could do a demo with, hey, now it finds you know your car keys, uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and I think what you mentioned is exactly right. I think a lot of those special projects groups, they're working on separate things, but there's like a unifying theory. And I think that's why Tim Cook has spoken about automation and spoken about augmented reality in a way that Apple typically doesn't about new products, because they don't see those things as products necessarily. They see them as core technologies, like your iPhone has a display, your iPad has a display, your Mac has a display. And what they're building now is going to be as ubiquitous to their products as displays are. And all of them have to ingest through a, a variety of sensors, like going all the way back to accelerometers and and digital compasses, all the way forward to LiDAR sensors, they have to ingest and understand the real world. And the positioning chip lets them do that at very small scale. And then the LiDAR things lets them do that in terms of seeing what's all around you, the way that Touch ID, sorry, Face ID, the True Depth camera does on, on towards you. And it lets them build and understand these virtual worlds so they can start placing things in it and deriving functionality from it. And, we, and maybe there'll be glasses one day and LiDAR is much more privacy-centric than RGB cameras are. But just the technology needed to figure out what's in a world in your place in it and the place of other objects that have U1 chips in them. I think that's the sort of the big play they're working towards. I, do, I, I keep thinking about that and I keep thinking how, uh, and I've been thinking about this for years and LIDAR definitely is a big step in this direction. And it, GPS was so f the first step on location awareness. Yeah. And it all goes, unfortunately, hand in hand with all of the various repercussions related to the just the catch-all phrase privacy. And it is, yeah. it's a phone book size 
deep dive on all the ways <laughs> that this, you know, ha has repercussions. But basically, as smart as our devices have gotten, and as good as the cameras are, and all of this, it, they still don't know where the hell they are, really. Yes. Right? And it's like, the potential for that is there, right? Like, you can just, it, it's like Indiana Jones with his fingertip on the Holy Grail, right? It's like, it's so close, uh, you, you know, your, your fingertip is touching it, of just, yeah. uh, of when you ask your phone for directions to like your meeting well remember when you used to be able to meet somebody at a restaurant uh <laughs> if we ever get back to meeting yeah. people at restaurants and somebody you know you're in a city that you're not you know you're you're visiting you're out of town you're in a city you're that both you're a dub not, dub yeah you're and somebody says meet me at such and such place it's you know you get directions now it's so much better than the old days before phones when you, you know all we had were somebody would hopefully tell you go to this street go through the next light and make a left and it there it is you know then you'd have to memorize it or have it written down phone yeah, yeah. phone directions are so much better than that but still your phone could do so much better right it should be like some kind of ar view where you just hold it up and it just shows you the arrow and says over there right here i know where we are we're at, we're at the corner of or amy's uh, at the food court and you can find the food court but you can't find the table right right exactly and those are the problems that this, I think this technology, I think it'll do way more than that eventually. Right. You know, the way screens do way more eventually, but I think that's what they're building towards. Yeah, and it's definitely um, the LiDAR stuff. Clearly, even though right now there just isn't a lot of, there aren't a lot of great demos that show it off. And even some of the stuff Apple showed off to, from third-party developers isn't out yet, you know, uh, I don't think uh, like, like the new version of hot lava where it turns your house yeah. into, into lava. Uh, cool demo. Can't wait for it to play with it. Not out yet. Really. We're stuck playing with the measure app, but even the measure app, man, is it so much better yeah. than, than the camera only accelerometer only measure app. Like LIDAR is the real deal. And you know, you know it when you see demos of actual cars out in the street, you know, test cars from various companies yeah. working on self-driving cars and they're largely, you know, enabled by LIDAR sensors pointing out in all the directions. So, you know, it, it's not like, oh, I didn't really know LIDAR was a thing, but boy, when you see it side by side, comparing a new, the brand new iPad Pro to, you know, either the previous one or to your iPhone and it, it can figure out like just a completely blank wall just a wall that is just white paint and it yeah. knows exactly where it is. There's no way that a camera based system could ever I had no, no chance. So what the hell could a camera do pointed at a white wall? And I'm really waiting for the time when it moves from being so active to being so passive. So I'm not like in LiDAR mode, but as I move my phone around, yeah. it's, it's just one of the things it's detecting. And then there's no more face ID or touch ID. It's just like the phone sees a, like, the phone sees a bit of my face. It hears a bit of my voice. It knows my gait when I'm walking. It, it knows when I'm touching the screen. And it, I don't have to worry about this whole like actively unlocking it again. It just says, I'm reasonably sure it's you. I'm unlocked. Oh, I don't know it's you anymore. I'm going to challenge you for a different prompt. Yeah. And then we start moving beyond all these sort of artificial barriers to our usage yeah all right let me take a break here and thank our first sponsor it's good friends at hover hey hover has long been a sponsor of this show and they are a terrific starting point for a lot of entrepreneurs anybody starting a new web project what's one of the first things you need you need a domain name right well that's what hover specializes in and they have 
everything you need, including, and I'll emphasize this, an outstanding reputation for trustworthiness and privacy. They've built their entire business around that. And it's a business, the domain name registration business, where uh, privacy and trust is not exactly hallmarks of a lot of registrars. Hover has over 300 domain name extensions to choose from when building your brand online. No matter what you want to build, there's a domain name waiting for it. You'll find excellent tech support, really award-winning outstanding expert technical support available to answer any questions you may have. Their support team doesn't upsell you. They only work hard to get you online. They have free who is privacy protection, a super clean user interface and monthly sales on popular top level domains. It's not hard to see why hover is a popular choice for people starting all kinds of businesses. I love hover I love their search interface. I love the way that if you're looking for myclevertdomain.com and myclevertdomain.com isn't there, they have really helpful suggestions. It's not like when you try to sign up for your name uh, as a username in a new social network and it's taken and they just stick a number at the end and they're like, oh, well, why don't you just take uh, Gruber 437? You know, it, it, the dumbest possible algorithm, you know, no hover really helps you and really comes up with clever suggestions for getting a domain name that both fits what you're looking for and actually looks cool and works. I love it. It's great. I love their technical support because the other thing that their technical support will help you do is they will help you move domains from another registrar to hover without disrupting, like let's say you're using it, not just like me with an armful of uh, domains I've registered while drunk over the years. No, I'm talking about ones that you actually use and you don't want to like disrupt your website. You don't want to disrupt your email. Hover can help you do that without disrupting any of that. And it'll just be seamless. And then all of a sudden your domain is at Hover where you have a better experience. Again, 300 top-level domain name extensions to choose from. You can get your domain name of choice and just anything else at hover.com slash talk show. That's hover, H-O-V-E-R dot com slash talk show. And when you use that referral link, you get a 10% discount on all new purchases. Make a name for yourself with hover at hover.com slash talk show. All right, let's start. Talk- ReneeRitchie.net. ReneeRitchie.net. What a great on man. Hover. <laughs> Thank God nobody took it, because what kind of a jerk would do that? I know, uh, I know. I got lucky. I get everything. I've had everything on Hover for years now. They're fantastic. It's really a great company, and one of my favorite successes because they've really stuck true to doing that one thing and doing it well. Yes, and it's it's really it's just a great service. I, I again, I, I love it. I love it. It's like the best thing in the world when you have a sponsor and you can just say, you know what? Even if they if they said to me, wrote me a letter and said. We've committed ourselves to never spending a dime on yes. advertising ever again. Good to know you. Well, you'll never see another nickel from us. I would still tell people to go to Hover. The same. Absolutely the same. Uh, all right. Here we go. Here's a question from Tom Woodfin. He asks, how do you think Apple sees the future of OLED in their devices? Will we ever see OLED MacBooks or iPads that the iPhone XR and 11 have picked up all the original 10 technology and design other than OLED uh, seems like a tell to me that Apple isn't happy with the tech. 
Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, it took Apple a long time compared to Android vendors to put OLED in the phones. Mm. And when you look back at some of the earlier OLED phones, the Pentile subpixels were horrible. I remember Sebastian DeWitt had to figure out how to anti-alias them himself because <laughs> they just didn't do it when he was working at Double Twist. And they... But they got better and better, and they got to a certain point where Apple was happy because, like, the blue color fades faster than the other colors, and they burn in. Mm. And there's just, it looks gorgeous. There's really good deep blacks, really good um, high bright levels. But you have to do so many mitigations to make it a workable technology, and especially on larger screens like iPads, the 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 amount of the the, <clears throat> the brightness is not contiguous. Like it has hard, it has brighter and darker spots, and especially at Apple scale, a lot of companies have made better panels than Apple, like Amazon and Samsung, because they were making far fewer of them, and it was easier to do it at smaller scale. But Apple makes a ton of MacBooks and a ton of iPads, and it's really hard to get. OLED fabricated at that sort of scale. So I really think they're going to wait for mini LED on the bigger devices. They're going to just skip OLED and go straight to that. It's a good question. I think it's a really good question, and it sort of captures the uh, sort of gestalt of Apple's display technology of the last five years and the next few years. And I think it's important to note Apple's first OLED device, and still, is the Apple Watch. And... It's, and it's RGB stripe. It's not pentile like the phones. I mean, that's, every, that's good OLED. Every Apple Watch ever made has been OLED, whether it's a you know $250 sport watch or a $20,000 solid gold Apple Watch. They've all been OLED. Um, the only difference in the displays is whether it's the sapphire yeah. gl- crystal display or, or the ionized glass, you know, which is less yeah. expensive in the sport models. But the actual underlying technology has always been OLED. Um, and is m- the, the, the downsides of OLED that you just mentioned, you know, the subpixels and the co- problems with other displays or certain colors and color accuracy, yeah. none of that is as big an issue on the watch, right? You don't watch video on your watch. Yes. The deep blacks are a huge benefit. I don't know that they would have launched Apple Watch until something like OLED with the deep blacks was possible because it completely – and you just look at the watch faces that are – you know, almost yes. all of the watch faces until the Series uh, 4 where they went yeah. to the rounded corner ones You know, had these black backgrounds – because it helped hide it honestly almost more than helped it almost completely hid the border between the yeah. bezel and the display and it the made enormous it, bezels yeah yeah and it's you know only when they got better you know four generations in and they could make a more iPhone 10 style bigger bigger amount of the surface area is devoted to the display and we can round the corners off did they start showing more faces, uh, providing more faces where the actual background is a vibrant color instead of black? Yeah, um, yeah I, I I think that OLED, I don't want to call it a stopgap, but I do think, and I don't know a ton about micro LED, but I just know, though, that it's it sounds to me like better long-term technology. Like OLED is amazing in so many ways, but has so many trade-offs. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's great. I love watching HDR uh, content. Like I have a... uh 
I have an LG OLED television. It's phenomenal. Very different technology to what they use on small screens. And I would love to have that on an iPad. I'd love to be able to see, again, those deep blacks. A lot of people, like you can show them an iPhone XR or an iPhone 11 next to an iPhone XS uh, or an iPhone 11 Pro. And Apple is so good at their color management, their color science, and their consistency that a lot of people just cannot tell the difference. I'm just spoiled in that I'm used to looking at HDR content, so I can. Yeah. It's by no means a detriment at this point, but I think it's just part of the natural. They're making so much HDR content for Apple TV Plus now, and it just looks so good. I think it's naturally where they want to go, but it's exactly what you said. OLED is sort of a stopgap to get there, and then we have mini LED and then micro LED, uh, and who knows, whatever is after that, maybe just VR displays everywhere. But those seem to have all the good characteristics of OLED without without the detriments, almost the best of both worlds. So I would expect we never get OLED Max. Uh, I kind of, and this is sort of cheating and based basing on what seems to be coming out of the Asian supply chain. It sounds to me like we might never get OLED iPads either. Yeah. That, that the next thing after what we have now will be micro LED. Mini, I think, first. Or mini first. I, yeah. I forget. Well, but superior LED technology. Yes. Um, and like you said, uh, like what makes OLED great for a big TV isn't really applicable to the small yeah. scale. And what, they've, what they're able to do with their high-end iPhone Pros... Um, is expensive. It's it's a big part of the reason why the the iPhone 11 Pro is more expensive than the iPhone 11, and the same reason why yeah. last year's phone, you know, the iPhone 10s was more expensive than the 10R. I also think that it depends on what you watch. Like I think I think it was Joanna Stern and I who were talking about this. Like Joanna is is a huge fan. Was it just huge huge fan of bought one herself, the 10R. And I think she yeah. still prefers the iPhone 11 over the 11 Pro. Depending on what you do with your phone, if if you're doing like a lot of just email and reading and uh, texting, I honestly think that in some ways, especially on a white background, that the LED looks better than yes. the OLED. And it has a wider Especially viewing. Especially off access. Yeah, off access OLED, even Apple's, which I think is arguably among, it would inarguably among the best in the world, possibly yeah. the best in the world, can have a bluish tint when you look at it side by side. And the 3X retina factor of their OLED iPhones versus the 2X retina of the all the LED ones that they've made to date looks bad, really bad on the spec chart, right? And that's one of those yeah. things where people who just sort of review quote unquote phones, uh, it's almost like they got it all out of their system with the 10R yeah. a year and a half ago, and they didn't even really bang the drum with the iPhone 11 this year. But they really were like, hey, for $800 or, you know, whatever the iPhone 10R and regular non pro 11 starting prices you should get more than you know you should be able to get uh you know what do they want they want the the 14 what or 1080p yeah. right they want 1080 yeah. no 1080p in 2018 or whatever their thing was because of the i don't want to go too far off in the weeds on this but because of the subpixel layout of oled screens arguably you need a 3x retina oled to yes. compete with a 2x led 
Yeah, and, absolutely. It's a pentyl and not an RGB stripe, right. um, which and, is much higher density. And if your eyes are sharp enough or you're using a, you know, a jeweler's loop or a magnifying glass to look at it, I'm not trying to say that there's that 3X OLED isn't, it's for the most part, better than the 2X LED in terms of resolution. I think it probably is, but it's a lot closer than you would think just by looking at 2x versus 3x. It is definitely not 1.5 times the resolution. It is no less. It's also, it's also like there's good. It's only one factor in determining a, a good pixel for a display. And there are some really bad OLED panels. Google in one of their uh, pixels, I think it was a three, the three XL. They had really bad OLED panels. Yes, in them. Yeah. they would burn in, and they were they were horrible with the color shifting and the banding. All, all of those things. So you you can have good and bad implementations of these things, and Apple is just so good at making LCDs, probably the best in the world, probably maybe with LG Tie for, for making really good LCD displays. That the sheer quality of them exceeds the resolution of them. Yeah, and and there's also if, at a philosophical level, I feel like uh, the RGB layout fits Apple's institutional philosophy better, where it's yeah. just a little bit more honest. And I don't mean dishonest in that OLED is dishonest like it's lying, but it's it's like a cheat, you know. It, it totally is. If they could do RGB stripe at iPhone scale, they would. It's just right. you, you, they can't fab good quality. They when Apple Apple is very forthright when they said like this is the first panel we thought was good enough for the iPhone. They mean it. And yes, Samsung used their process, and right. I think Samsung's process is the best in the world. BCE kind of copied it, so you know they're ramping up fast. But Apple still said no. We want these materials, not this material. We want it done. They designed the whole thing and then had Samsung fab it, and they made it the way that they were comfortable making it. Yeah, I'm going to take an aside here, and it's not even a question, but I'm going to talk about this because I had to buy a new TV recently, and I haven't talked about it. Um, and, but we we renovated our living room, and we have a very very big wall with room for a very large TV, and I'd still we had still been using a 2006 uh, Pioneer plasma, which I still have, and I've just moved to a, a lesser room, used room in the house. And Same. I, and I don't turn it on anymore, and I just I walk by and I pet it because <laughs> it's seriously dollar for dollar one of the great purchases of my entire life in terms of how happy I it has made me over the years and how happy I still am with the picture and the color. And I just I don't want to go off on a rant and lament, but I mean at this point I realize that the techn technical limitations of plasma it, it got killed by marketing problems because it was inherently more expensive and leds got so absurdly cheap that it just became unfeasible to sell these expensive plasmas side by side with them but you can't make them as th anywhere near thin enough by today's standards you know when i got it in 2006 i was moving from <laughs> a giant 35 inch i think trinitron <laughs> crt which weighed like twenty thousand pounds <laughs> it was so so heavy. It was like the biggest CRT Sony made for home use. And I love that TV too, but it, it a big, fat, heavy, thick, by today's standards, plasma in 2006 seemed so thin and light compared to a CRT. But anyway, it was time to buy a new TV. Hadn't bought one since 2000, end of 2006, I think. Um, and I knew I wanted OLED. And I thought, oh, here we go. Uh, I put it off and put it off because I thought this is going to be a nightmare buying a TV. Turns out, if you once you decide you want OLED, 
it is actually it's like the difference between deciding you want to buy an Apple MacBook yes. versus a PC, right? Chromebook or something. Right. And if you want to buy a yeah, a PC notebook, you and you really want to make sure you're making the best decision. You you know, you've you you're gonna have an entire notebook filled with notes. Um, yeah. whereas if you just, you know, you want to get a MacBook, well, now you just decide pro or air or yes. 16 or 13. And then, you know, a little bit of decision-making on how much Ram and how much storage you need. And then you're done. OLED, buying an OLED TV today is sort of like that. Number one, you are going to pay significantly more for the same size TV compared to an LED. It is going to look way better. You will notice the difference. It is, you don't need to be a picky, picky person to say, wow, this is brighter and the, you know, the blacks are blacker. And if you're coming from plasma like I am, it's the only thing that makes it possibly bearable. <laughs> and again, the blacks are better than they were on the plasma, but the overall color warmth of the things that I care about, like movies, Still isn't as good as plasma, but it's so much closer than the cool, cold remoteness of LEDs. Um, basically, when you want to buy an, L an OLED today, and again, I cheated tremendously, and I just told had Syracuse tell me what to buy. I do exactly the same thing. <laughs> but really, you've only—I think you've only got four brands to choose from. You've got LG, Sony, Samsung, and Vizio. And if there are other brands, I don't know who they are and what they make. But Sony doesn't make their own panels. They yes. use LG panels. And so at a, at a panel level, when you're deciding between Sony and LG, you're just talking about the actual TV itself and which software is better. And LG's software, everybody says, is better. I can't, I, 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 you could search the whole web, and I don't know that you can find anybody who says that Sony's weird Android um, yep. TV thing is better than LG's WebOS there we are, back to WebOS-based yes. <laughs> interface. Uh, they're also minimal Chrome-wise, right? Like, this is part of the yeah. beauty of of the OLED revolution is that there's so little Chrome bezel around these TVs that none of them, even Samsung, who loves to put their shiny, stupid, ugly logo on everything, there's no room for logos. So there's no shiny LG thing or badge down there. It's just a tiny black border around the screen. Um, so you can rule Sony out because you got the same panels as LG, as yeah. good or better prices and better software from LG. There you go. Vizio uh, is sort of the discount brand. I don't. I've never heard anybody say there's any reason to get a Vizio other than that they're cheaper. And then you're down to LG versus Samsung, and it's pretty much the same thing. It doesn't seem like anybody thinks the Samsung ones are better in, in, in any way. Yeah. And now so Samsung now, is better at small screen OLED, and, and LG is way better at big screen OLED right now. And then so very very easy process of reduction. You're like, well, now I'm going to buy an LG. Which one should I get? And it's it's not once you figure. This is where Syracuse really helped. Is that they have like A series, which are sort of less expensive entry level. The or I think B A and B, A B and C, where each one is better. C is better, but not too much better. Only a little bit more expensive. Then the next number is a year. So like a C nine series means uh, twenty nineteen. The, the the way they this is the part I'm getting to. The way they do the years is insane. Where they just use one digit. <laughs> so a C nine series OLED from LG means twenty nineteen OLED. Um, and then what are they going to do for 2020? <laughs> are they going to use a zero? Nope. Using an X. 
They've gone to Roman numerals. It's insane. Yeah. I have no idea what they're going to do for 2021. Are they going to go to XI? I don't know. I don't know why they didn't just use two digits, right? And again, all the trouble the world got into with the Y2K thing using two-digit years, um, at least with OLED televisions, I think we're pretty safe to assume that 81 years from now, we're not going to still be using OLED TVs. So I feel yes. like I feel like they would have had so much runway if they had just used two years for the year number. Uh and then you just pick what size you want, and then you're done. And there you go. Uh, yeah, I think that's fantastic. Too. I made the exact. I, I listened to Syracuse too, and I made the exact same call, and I've been super happy, both with the plasma and with the OLED. Yeah, it is very good technology for TV. We're very happy with it. Um, and it's funny because it's a new thing, and I still have to get a new sound system. And uh, it's it this whole. <laughs> This whole, not that we can't order a sound system in the midst of being uh, bunkered in home, self quarantining, but it's just sort of lowered it on the priority list. And yes. in the meantime, the built in sound from this TV is actually better than our old standalone sound system for the fairly large living room that it's in. It's actually not too bad. Not, not that I'm going to stick with it for too long, but it's actually uh, way better than I ever had any reason to expect the built-in sound on a TV would be. So anyway. it's really good. And also when you watch it with like native content, which I mean like the HDR and starting to get the Dolby Atmos, uh, Disney plus has that Apple TV plus has that. It's just night and day. Yeah. 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 And when you do get HDR content, I, even with my weirdo eyes at the moment, it's like, Ooh, Ooh, you can see that. That is, Ooh, that's really nice. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, there's my side on, on getting a TV. Next question. Boy, I'm bad at this question and answer format. No, it's good. Uh, anyway, well, fair warning. Uh, none of these questions are in any sort of, uh, order. So we're going to bounce all over the place. Uh, next question, Stephen Morris, in what ways does Apple need to improve its services? What services do you think need the most time invested in them right now? Another good question. What do you think? Uh, for me, it's still Siri, I think, because it's such a front-facing, customer-facing service. And while it does a lot of clever things, we talked about it on a previous show, it's just like one out of every nine, ten times or one out of every 20 times, it gives you a completely zany answer. Like, I'll say, call my mom, and it'll work 19 times, and the 20th time, it'll call a hair salon. Or I'll say, like, find, like, show me photos from New York City, it'll work perfectly, and then one time it'll just try to search Bing for them. And I think that the that nailing the consistency for an assistant technology is just so core to how to, to building trust with that system that it should be there, if not their top priority, then really close to it. That's a good answer. Uh, I think it's very true. I think that I've repeated this numerous times. I, I, I'm not saying that they shouldn't have launched Siri when they did. And a year or two difference, I mean, there may or may not have been some aspect of a rush in terms of wanting to debut Siri in a phone while Steve Jobs was still alive. Um, it's probably the last major feature, you know, that he lived to see. Uh, a year or two wouldn't have made a huge difference in the overall thing. It's probably the right time. Other companies were going to have it. If Siri hadn't been out for another five or six years, it, Apple would have looked ridiculously out of touch. Uh, but all of these things are off to such a bad start, in my opinion, in terms of just giving everybody a very bad taste in the mouth 
as a first impression in terms of how reliable they are. And compare and contrast with touchscreen computing, where the yeah. iPhone debuted and whatever other limitations you want to talk about, if you went back to a 2007 original iPhone right now, the touchscreen isn't one of them. It the latency, the responsiveness to multi-touch, to pinching, to scrolling, to flicking uh, was phenomenal. And I guess it's not the first touchscreen that most people have used. Everybody, you know, we've been to, to airports and there's a touchscreen for getting your boarding pass and it, it, they all stunk, right? The back of or your like airplane the ones with the stylus. Right. They... They all stunk. And and having the iPhone say, here's the first one that you're gonna want to use, and here's the here's here's where we're setting the bar, and people would say, Oh, and now you expect everything to instantaneously respond to the touch of your fingers. Siri and Scala uh, and uh again, sorry if I triggered I should have said <laughs> dingus and dingus and dingus. Yes. I ho- hopefully I didn't set anybody's things off. Sorry. Buy maybe any dollhouses. All of these things are so terrible in the grand scheme of things. All of them. And feel free to rank Siri third as the third of the three. But And whichever one you, dear listener, think is the best, whether it's Alexa or Google or if you do think it's uh, Siri, they all stink. They're, none of them are, are good. They should all, you know... We know what we want them to be like. We want them to be genuinely conversational. And they don't they don't have to have a a, a personality like Hal or Kit. <laughs> I never really realized as a kid, by the way, just how much Kit was a ripoff of Hal. Yes. <laughs> it it doesn't have to have a personality, but you should at least be able to have a conversation and we're not there yet. So I would yeah, Siri has got to be there. And and anyway, the fact that the first impression is so bad just means it has to get so much better before it re-earns the trust of people who are like I'm not even going to bother asking, you know, my voice assistant for this because I just don't want a stupid answer. Well, I think it's a mixed blessing. Like I think Steve and and Scott Forstall were deeply invested in it, but when Scott left, it sort of got handed off to a vice president in Eddie's org, and it didn't really get the attention it needed uh, because no one really foresaw. Even now, it's going to be critically important in an AR. If they're working on the AR operating system, it's going to be critically important for that. And they have John Andrea there now, who's absolutely phenomenal. And I think his organization will be as important to the next 10 years as John Saruji's Silicon team yeah. has been to the last 10 years. But there's a lot of rebuilding to do. And because they're assistant number one, even if they allow default apps to be changed and default assistants, when you first install a new OS or you first get a new phone, they'll have an opportunity to like do something spectacular to get your attention. But I just think that that like just maybe make a whole separate Siri cloud that you can beta and just have people go through that over and over again. Because every beta process now Siri breaks a little bit more because they're busy working on the back end, and that just makes it it makes it harder to build that trust relationship. I I would add as a second service that I would like to see continue to improve is iCloud as a whole. And I think iCloud has done very well. I think that, and again, that's another thing where maybe it got off to a bad start. And because it left a bad first impression with an awful lot of people, it's had to get better, even better than it would have had to have been originally to get people to trust it again. Um. But it's re- I, I really do entrust most of my digital syncing life to iCloud, and it for years now has been really, really solid. It is up there with the best of any sync service that I've used. Um, but I still think that there's room for improvement. 
I would like to see it, and it's a small thing, but I'd like to see it get decoupled further from OS releases. Like, it would be nice, and I get why. I, I, I understand the way Apple thinks and the way Apple approaches stuff like a new version of the Reminders app or a new version of the Notes app and why you have to upgrade to Catalina to get it. it but there's no real reason for that. There's no, you know, like look at Safari, the way that Safari is still made, new versions of Safari are still made available to people who are still using 10.14 and 10.13. Um, it would be nice if you're upgrading reminders to a major new version. And it is such a great, it's one of the great highlights that we don't talk too much about from last year. Reminders really went from an afterthought app to a really nice app, but it kind of stinks that it's coupled so tightly to being on the latest and greatest OS, especially on the Mac, where for professional reasons, there's an awful lot of reasons, not just vague conservatism about upgrading to the new version of Mac OS X, but just in a professional environment where you've got everything set up just so, you're, you don't want to be upgrading your OS uh, yeah, without, or if you're dependent on 32-bit plugins. Yes, for example, you're still, right, yeah. right, right, and especially the 10.14 to 10.15 transition, where it it you know a whole chunk of 32-bit software is is literally cannot be run. It's not even you know it's not like oh you have to click a warning. Yeah, it just doesn't run. So, so I would I, like to I, s- I agree with that totally, but I'd love to see it like a step further. I, I've been advocating for a while that Apple just not get away from monolithic software releases because I think there's a lot of advantage to having that big WWDC announcement. But instead of saying coming September, I want them just to say coming over the next year. And then there's no pressure enough iMessages, iMessage sync is late or AirPlay 2 is late. It's not like, oh, Apple failed to deliver it. It's like these are the, this is the roadmap for the next year of iOS. And some of the stuff comes in September and some comes in in October, some comes in March, some comes in June before the next announcement, and then decouple the online stuff entirely. Microsoft and Google did that years ago, and just that stuff gets updated almost all the time. And yeah. it just it allows so much more freedom, uh, and it, it just it, we don't have to worry about it as users either. And I think it has huge advantages. Yeah, I uh, I think so too. So I would like to see Apple continue to work on that regard, and and you know, and be able to push iCloud updates off cycle. All right, next question. Ricardo Lamas asks, very short to the point, iPhone 2020 pricing? Are we screwed with all the things going on in the world? <laughs> I'm I'm interpreting part two of his question to are we screwed getting iPhones in September, new iPhones in September, as opposed to, Maybe, yeah. to the darker question of <laughs> are we collectively screwed? <laughs> with all the things going on in the world. Um, I'm going to take it as an iPhone question, but if if he meant the bigger sense, I guess the honest answer <laughs> is I don't know, yeah. uh, but I hope not. Uh, I think the 2020 iPhones thing, I know that there was some news. Uh, 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 I think Nikkei uh, had a news report that said that Apple was in discussions about, you know, planning discussions for whether the new iPhones, I mean, it's, again, you can't cancel what hasn't been announced, but everybody knows that the schedule Apple's been on for years now, which is, you know, the second Tuesday of September is iPhone introduction Tuesday. And then they 
you know, start shipping at like the 21st of the month that are somewhat later in the month. And that's also when iOS 14 comes out, blah, blah, blah. Everybody knows that schedule. Will that schedule hold this year with everything going on? And Nikkei reported that Apple at the highest levels is discussing, well, maybe not. And if so, what does yeah. that mean? And then Digitimes came out with a counter report that said, no, there's, they're not talking about it, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I think if you just pause for a second and just think, of course, Tim Cook and Phil Schiller and Craig Federighi and uh, engineering teams and everybody at Apple and and the finance teams like Lucas team yeah. and if everybody is looking, everything is on the table, right? There's, is it the supply chain that might screw Apple and prevent stuff from being ready in September? Is it the work from home? regulations that are ongoing that are keeping Apple's and software engineering teams from collaborating like they're used to and the travel restrictions. They can't go to China and work on the prototypes. Exactly. Right. Is It's all of the above, all of it, all of it factors into it. Oh, and then there's the macroeconomic question of, yeah. and the, the reading the room where the room is the world is, you know, it, Will the world be ready uh, for it? Will it play the way that Apple wants it to play as a, here, here's good news. We have exciting new iPhones to introduce. Will the world be ready for that in, in September? Uh, who knows? So of course, of course they're, they're considering what are the plan B, C, D, E, right? Yeah. And I think it's interesting in a couple of ways because first, um, Usually every year there's rumors that Apple is going to be late with the new iPhone. It goes all the way back to that old video where Jim Cramer said, yeah, every year, you know, to protect my shorts, I call up an <laughs> Apple news site and say it's going to be late. And they love to run with that stuff. And then like the market dumps my, 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 I cover my, I cover my nut and I, I go home. You know, it's like, so I think there's a huge amount of market manipulation that goes on in the best of years. But this year, there's no expectation. I don't think anyone, anyone reasonable, anyone of a right mind would have an expectation that products will come out the way they would in a year that didn't have everything going on now. But the other two pressures I see is there's rumors of a smaller iPhone, like the iPhone will move to a smaller uh, 11 style and a normal size 11 style, and then an 11 sized uh, Pro and an even bigger Pro. And typically the smaller ones are less expensive, the bigger ones are more expensive. But most of them are going to go 5G. The the basic ones are going to go sub-6, which is like the T-Mobile real kind of slightly better than LTE 5G and the pros are going to go a millimeter wave and sub 6 and millimeter wave is the Verizon AT&T one that I'm still not convinced will ever be a real consumer technology it might end up like WiMAX but those are typically $100 more expensive if you look at Android vendors uh, or like the Samsung the, the lightest generation of Samsung phones are fairly similar to what the rumors are going to be for, the rumors have been for iPhones and they're all much more expensive than they were previously so I think if Apple, like they can do what they did with the iPad, where they move down the lower end ones, people get really happy. Like the, the iPhone 9 will be 399 and the smaller iPhone 11 will be a little bit cheaper than 700 bucks, maybe 600 bucks or something. And then if they have to boost the higher end one, that's even bigger because people originally already think they're going to pay more for bigger anyway. And it has 5G on it. I think that's how they'll, they'll balance out the pricing this year. Can I, can I, I'm just going to toss in my sense here as a 5G skeptic. 
And I don't yes. want to go down here. I don't want to be quoted like Bill Gates, 640 kilobytes of memory <laughs> ought to be enough for anyone. Uh, which quote, I believe, if you actually look at the further context of isn't nearly as foolish as the soundbite version makes Bill Gates seem. I don't want to say that 5G is never going to be an important thing. And I don't want to say that we're never going to, in a handful of years, you know, somewhere between now and 2024, let's say, uh, that we won't be looking back at the pre-5G network performance and thinking, yeah, that was that was kind of crappy. Maybe. But I have to say, it, it, there's a point of diminishing returns, and I don't, I don't, I refuse to believe th- that any 5G could be that much better than the LTE performance I'm getting all the time nowadays. So that's totally true. And uh, my colleague Daniel, or my former colleague Daniel Bader, my friend Daniel Bader, opened my eyes to this when he explained that for people like us, there won't be much difference. They say, like, at best, it's a 20% improvement for sub six, but there are vast swaths of the country that just don't have LTE. It's right. never been delivered. And the increase in bandwidth, because they're freeing up so much capacity for it, that the, 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 what 5G will really do is deliver on the promise of LTE for far more people. I think, like, the, the MM millimeter wave stuff, you're exactly right. It's it's a fantasy. It's just not like if you have to turn if you turn around or it rains and you lose your signal, that's not a consumer technology. But the sub six version, which is the cheaper and more ubiquitous version, that's just going to make LTE real for everybody. And I think that that part of it's a win. Yeah. So that's and that's you know I live in a big city with good LTE coverage, and I don't want to be dismissive of people who live elsewhere. I have family who lives places where. I can't wait to go yeah. visit. The, well, remember when you could visit your family, but yes, <laughs> God, it but seems like so long ago. I look forward to visiting them and having a strong signal. That would be yeah. tremendous. Uh, so I'm not putting it down, but I do think you know that that is a much that's much that's compelling that that yeah. there are swaths, big swaths of area that don't get an LTE signal at all and could get 5G because of whatever reasons, you know, that the, the bandwidth, the, the what, the... the uh, Yeah, just all, all, the, you know, all the bands that they're opening up for yeah. 5G and also the reliability of it, it yeah. looks like it's going to be better than... It's more robust than LTE, at least. Right, so that is a huge win. In terms of, like, day-to-day for me and probably most yes. people who actually do get a good LTE signal, I just don't see it. Like, what... If I can already stream... Uh, 4k video what the hell else am i what am i doing <laughs> what am i going to be doing yeah. that needs that needs this? even the carriers yeah. don't know their advertising is such garbage it's like oh i forget the joke it's like 8k you'll be able to beam 8k over 5g to your television and none right. of those things are real right and i i the other thing that i would like them and it has to be on their radar they have to be thinking about it but it's like what i would like them to be thinking about is not just going from LTE to 5G and selling people new handsets and presumably somehow tacking on a 5G service feed to to my monthly bill so they can charge me more. Um, I would like to see them start looking at building out a capacity that would allow them to take on the landline-based broadband providers, right? Yeah. Like, that's the only chance I'm ever going to have of getting a serious option a competitor to Comcast, I think, is going to be over-the-air wireless. And 
performance-wise, and I have a pretty good Comcast. I mean, up is no good. You know, it's the nature. And maybe I can there's some yeah. maybe there's somebody I can call at Comcast and get that change. But uh, you know, I get about 200 megabits per second down. My Eero, not a sponsor this week, but my Eero system that I have in the house gives us, you know, uh, somewhere close to that theoretical maximum of 200 plus. And at times, you know, I get close to 300 down from the wall, right over the wire. Yeah. The Eero gives us Wi-Fi throughout the house that is pretty close, you know, in practical terms to what you could expect. If that's what you're getting from the wire, what could you possibly expect by Wi-Fi? Up is, you know, at best 20, but usually closer to 10. And so, yes, when I upload a new version of the podcast and I have to wait a while, uh, I am annoyed. But, you know, for the most part, I would just like a lower bill. <laughs> yeah. And the big reason I can't do that now, performance-wise, my LTE, upstream LTE for me on a daily basis is way faster than my modem, my, my cable. Um, yeah. the, the reason I can't just cancel Comcast is the bandwidth, the, you know, the limits, you know, that we'd, we would shoot over it in a, you know, probably a day with the way my son watches YouTube. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think I think about it because we go to conf the conferences or events like the iPhone event, and the hotel has crappy Wi-Fi. Yeah, yeah. And I'm trying to upload, and then I figure it'd be great if I could do it. But then, how expensive would that be? And if I'm the 18th YouTuber trying to do it, right. how much bandwidth would actually be left on the signal? Well, we were talking about this. I think we we're repeating ourselves, but I know that it, it was one of those times where it was like last WWDC. Me not being a YouTuber, even though I, I, I guess I sort of am at UWDC, normal WWDCs yes. because my, uh, my live show does get put on YouTube, but I don't do it. <laughs> I'm not the one uploading it. Um, but like you and Marquez, Marquez moved to a new hotel. Yes. And I tried to follow him, but they took right. the last room. <laughs> he left. He abandoned his hotel room. And again, it sounds ridiculous, but if you think, well, you know, for a couple hundred bucks on a, you know, for, you know, will you pay a couple hundred bucks for a, what is your profession? Yeah, yeah, it's worth it. But anyway, that's my thing. Uh, the other thing I noticed is amidst all this, I don't know if other carriers are doing the same. I don't know what the story is up, up your way in Canada, but here in the U.S., Verizon has given everybody 15 gigabytes of monthly yeah. Tethering, or what do they call it? Hotspot uh, support, uh, just tacked onto your plan, no charge. You know, we know everybody's working at home. Uh, in the midst of all this, here's 15 gigabytes of tethering. Uh, why, why the hell? You know, if if they can do that now that everybody's using it, why? <laughs> what are they doing with all that excess capacity in the normal months? Right? Well, I, I think I also heard conversely that um, a lot of people are are, low, are vastly reducing their plans because they're not out and using yeah. data. They're all home using Wi-Fi. So I wonder if they're they're afraid that people won't up their plans again. Yeah, and yeah. they have extra capacity because people are using it less. Yeah, uh, it's almost like there's no cars on the road, so they're they're yeah. trying to do this so that you think they're a nice per a nice company, and when you go back, you you go back to what you used to use. Yeah, I've heard the same thing from a couple of friends on Slack who were just like, "Yeah, I just actually checked my usage, and it's like, yeah, I haven't used anything." <laughs> And then they're like, ah, duh, I haven't left the house in uh, yeah. 72 hours. I had hours. like 30 gigabytes on my plan because I was traveling so much and I reduced it down to very little and no roaming anymore. Yeah. All right, let's take a break here and I'll thank our next sponsor, Linode. I used to call them Linode. 
but they're not. They're Linode because they're Linux hosting, even though it looks like Linode. Look, whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, big enterprise, Linode Cloud Hosting has the pricing support and scale. You need to take your project to the next level. They have 11 data centers worldwide, enterprise-grade hardware, and their next-generation network. Linode Cloud Hosting delivers the server performance you expect at a price that you don't as a special offer for all talk show listeners and new Linode customers. Use the promo code TALKSHOW2020. No the, just talk show 2020. Name of the show in the year 2020. And guess what? You check out, you receive $20 in free credit. As an added bonus, get a free three-month trial of object storage. That's their S3 compatible, uh, redundant, highly available storage option. So any kind of backend you have that's programmed against the S3 APIs, you can use their object storage instead. Plug it right in. Uh, really, it's a great option starting on March 2nd. So that was earlier in the month, and it ends on April 30th. Anybody with a Linode account can test out object storage. You can just log into the cloud manager, add a new object storage bucket, and get started. And you get a three free month trial of object storage uh, when you sign up using the code TALKSHOW2020. Uh, One-click installs of popular apps, WordPress, the LAMP stack, game servers, for Minecraft, CSGO, I don't even know what that is, and more. I know what Minecraft is. And I mentioned this the last time they sponsored the show, and a couple of listeners wrote to me and said, you know, I never really thought about that. My kid loves Minecraft. I play Minecraft. You can get one of their uh, Nanode accounts, $5 a month. It's a terrific deal, the Nanode plan. And you can install your own Minecraft server, and you have a great place to play the game. Giving your kid their own Minecraft server, then they and their pals can play there. It's a nice, safe place where you know there's no goofballs there. It's funny. Minecraft's such a great game. My 16-year-old son has gotten back into it. You think it's like for little kids, but now him and his pals in 10th grade are back into it running a Minecraft server that only costs 5 bucks a month. It's great. Everything they do at Linode at native SSD storage. So whether it's something as goofy as a little... Minecraft server for you and your kid and and pals, or seriously important stuff to your business. Everything at Linode, native SSD storage, 40 gigabit network, industry-leading processors, their revamped cloud manager, which has a terrific, terrific user interface. They have their own API with a Python library. So if you really got to write your own code to, to integrate the stuff you want to do with your production servers or your testing servers or whatever you're doing, you can do it. And they even have GPU compute plans that you can get that are suitable for AI, machine learning, video processing, anything that really needs GPU computational stuff. Uh, so anyway, remember the code, TALKSHOW2020. When you create a new Linode account, you'll get $20 credit towards your next project. Again, that's four free months with their Nanode plan. Four free months of a great, great plan that is totally useful. And last but not least, they are still hiring. Linode.com slash careers. You can find out more. Talk show 2020 and go to Linode.com slash the talk show. And you can find out more. Linode.com slash the talk show. And the coupon is talk show 2020. All right, let's keep going. Let's power through this list. 
How is my series? a question from Brian, no last name. How's your Titanium Series 5 watch holding up? Initially, there seemed to be some concern about how easily it might scratch. Great question. I haven't talked about this in a while. I would say it is holding up terrifically. I picked up a scratch early on on the side facing me, like underneath. Like I would say at about 33 minutes past the hour on the titanium part, right? So the 33-minute mark, not quite in the middle. And it's not really a scratch. It's almost like uh, it's like a some kind of coating came off there. I don't know what yeah. I did. That's the only one. That happened early on. Uh, I haven't seen any other marks. I love it overall. I've been a, a space black Apple Watch wearer until now. Uh, yeah. I, I couldn't be happier with my decision to go titanium this time. It really makes me happy as a watch nerd that I have this watch. I'm even wearing the uh, – I didn't think about this, but I'm wearing the uh, – I don't know why, but during this uh, isolation thing, I've been digging out old Apple Watch straps and putting – putting. <laughs> I mean, anything, anything to yeah. occupy my brain. Absolutely. <laughs> I've worn uh, Apple Watch straps I haven't worn ever or before. I'm wearing the uh, – the sport band that comes with the titanium model. It's a sort of a yeah. grayish thing. It has a titanium, what do you call the plug that, that pokes through the hole? Yes. Uh, I never really wore it. I'm, I'm usually a black, dark strap person, and this is sort of a medium one. But I've been wearing it the last couple of days. I really like it. I've been wearing the gray ba- uh, bands. I was wearing one of the new ones. I forget what the color is called, but it's the gray sport loop with the orange um, trim on it and I like the gray ones just because if I forget the color chart in my videos and I hold up my hand I can freeze it for one <laughs> second and white balance off the watch band oh, which great. is such a nerdy thing to do but it's I, I've been wearing my titanium too it's the brushed titanium I imagine the DLC is like the DLC stainless steel which means yeah. it's like Batman's watch or something it, yeah. it, it breaks things not it'll be around but I have two tiny little and they aren't scratches they just look like the polished coating they put on top of the brushed metal has been yep. dented a little bit. But yeah, that's the what, titanium looks fine. Yeah, and I have the same one too, the regular titanium, not the DLC yeah. one. Because my thinking on the darker one is if you're going to go black, go all the way. Go to space black, stainless 100%. steel. If you're going to if you're gonna upgrade over the aluminum ones, then you're going to go black, go black, black. Uh, yeah. Whereas I like this. And Pan, I, I still can't beat Panzerino's uh, description from like, the day of the event where he described it as like a sort of uh, DeLorean look. Yeah. yeah. It's and, like the old quick, quick time window come to life. Yeah. I just, <laughs> I, it, and it does. And I, uh, the other strap I've been wearing that I really like a lot is the, uh, and never wore before this, this Apple watch is the leather magnetized one. I don't know what Apple yeah, calls the it. The leather loop. The leather loop. And I like the leather loop it's uh it's a different way of looping than the sport band and the yeah. the mesh uh metal one uh, the milanese the milanese which has like at one side you can choose top or bottom but one side it has to double over the leather one yeah. only loops double over right at the bottom of your wrist which i yeah. happen to like a lot but that leather, the the black leather, are they, I don't think they call it black. It's like super dark gray or something. It's like near black. But the way that that leather is pebbled, I don't know that I like it in the abstract, but combined with this sort of 80s DeLorean look, yes. gives it just goes so well with this watch and has sort of a 
DeLorean 80s Back to the Future vibe without looking kitschy at all. I, I like it. And I said it before, like if the, the sports loops are like sweatpants for your wrist, the leather loops are like yoga pants for your <laughs> wrist. They're just so comfortable. They really are. But a little bit classier. They really are. Let me just say this. While we're on the subject of uh, Apple Watch straps, the sport bands – not the sport bands. The uh, I keep calling them sport bands. Or sport band is the, the polyurethane – I don't know what they call it – the rubbery ones. And the sport yeah. loops are the Velcro ones. The default Apple Watch strap from day one clearly has been the sport band, the rubber one yeah. that's based on the Mark Newsom design from his – what was his watch called back in the day? Um, oh, I'm blanking on it too. Yeah, whatever it was called. Uh, you know, and it's not like they ripped him off. They Johnny Ive was pals with him and they brought him in. and he, They hired you know, him, yeah. They hired him and obviously paid him for the rights to this strap design. You see it everywhere. It is clearly, you know, it comes as the default strap with a lot of watches, most Apple watches. You see lots of people who wear it every day. It It's part of the the iconic nature of the Apple watch, right? I mean, this is a very, it, but it's also, as a watch nerd, it is super clever. And yeah. one of the things with an awful lot of watch straps is what do you do with the extra part right icopod There's, sorry i think it was icopod yeah that's it icopod right um what do you do with the extra part of a watch strap and there's always like a you know a lot of watch straps have a little belt you know yeah. that you tuck it under but then you can kind of see it over the top of the wrist and especially it peels back over time and it you know phrase the design of this where it just tucks under the other side of the strap is so extraordinarily clever and in the years since Apple Watch has come out it's you know it's been ripped off by a whole bunch of other people be, you know because anything popular gets ripped off yes but the other thing that i it so a it's a very clever design and it deserves its iconic nature it's it really does it's comfortable it is convenient it looks good it is super clever and has solved a problem that has plagued watches for decades as a what do you do with the extra part but the other thing that I think really deserves praise is that these bands last forever. Like poking a hole, you know, where you poke the little knob through the hole to get it to fit, you would think, and with most watch straps, whether they're especially leather, leather inevitably, you know, starts to get a, you know, a bigger hole over time if you're poking a, a thing through the hole like a belt. These, it's like you can never tell. Like I've been wearing, you know, I have, uh, I have some of these that I've worn a lot. You take it off and kind of hold the lights up, and you can't tell which is the hole that you use every day. Like the durability of this material is incredible. And if you like just fluoroelastomer, I think they call fluoroelastomer. That is the term yeah. they use. It's incredibly durable. It, yeah. it, it's really amazing. And then the other part, the 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 top part of the strap that has the the pin. And has the slot that the other side of the watch tucks under, it gets very thin at that point, right? There's very little at that part where where the the little slot where you tuck it under. There's not much floral elastomer there. If you didn't know better, you would think, well, that's going to rip. It looks yeah. like something that would rip after time. It doesn't. I've never seen anybody have one that rips. And you work out with it, you sweat with it, you swim with it. It's, it really is a remarkable base band for the whole system. Yeah, you, you go, you know, all sorts of ways that you can knock your wrist against something. I mean, watch straps, yeah. you know, 
aren't known for lasting forever, uh, or at least the rubber type ones aren't. Really, I, Apple deserves it, – it's another one of the ways that their materials engineering teams are just doing work that just doesn't get commented upon enough. Like yeah. their their fluoroelastomer team has made these watch straps that I, I've never seen one where where there's all sorts of ways that you can have like a belt like watch strap with holes and you poke a thing through the hole for the size that you want. Those holes inevitably get bigger and wear out. I don't know what the hell that black magic they've done that these that doesn't <laughs> happen with these, but they doesn't seem like they get kudos for that and they should. It's one of those things where people, especially tech people, love to complain that Apple's not innovating, and they point to what I would describe as gimmicks on a lot of other devices that don't last. Like, a year later, you never see them again. And Apple just does these things, like makes interchangeable watch straps that are really durable. Or you see people with other phones say, oh, I tried to take a picture, but it didn't. the camera app didn't load, or it lost frames, or the video keeps stuttering. And Apple makes this whole performance controller just to make sure every frame gets saved to the storage. And it, those kinds of things, I think, are less... Uh, they're less in your face, but I think a lot of it makes real differences to how we use our products. Yeah, I totally agree. I also think, you know, that that as the years go on and more people have Apple Watches and people who have them have worn them more and more, that the basic idea of, well, wait, everybody sort of shows their individuality through what watch they pick. Isn't it a little weird that everybody is inevitably wear, having the same watch? And having all of the variety, or almost all of it, right? We were just talking about titanium versus aluminum. But for the most part, at a glance, you can't tell if a titanium one's titanium or if it's aluminum. Um, it's the bands that really stand out at a glance. And it's been successful. It's I, I think it's actually a remarkably successful um, way of people still feeling individual. They've individualized their Apple Watch, um, even though at at a basic level, their watch is exactly the same as everybody else's. Yeah. Yeah. No, hundred percent. Next question. Oliver Thomas asks, now that iCloud folder sharing has gone live with the release of iOS 13.4 and, uh, whatever the new version of Catalina is 15.4 or whatever. Anyway, whatever new versions came out last week, have either of you switched away from Dropbox? I'll answer first. No. Although I do use iCloud a lot, but I I use it all for personal stuff and none of my collaboration stuff yet. Yeah. I'm the same. I use I I've been slowly like it it's a big ask and and I think it's good because Dropbox has been doing things over the last few years that I that I would rather they didn't do and there's been a bit of a movement to move away from Dropbox. But it it works for me. I have almost my entire documents folder in there. It means I can switch between computers very easily. And it does things in a way that makes that easier than than some of the ways that iCloud documents work. But I've been slowly using iCloud more and more. And as it proves reliable and as I adapt my workflows to it, I hope I can move more and more things over. Uh, it's harder to collaborate with everybody on it because not everybody is using a system that has iCloud available for things like shared folders. But... Um, I would like to integrate more of it because I prefer Apple's overall policies on iCloud better. Yeah, so I would say not yet, and I and it's not just because thirteen point four and the new version of Catalina just shipped in the last week. It's I anticipated this even when it was announced at WWDC last year, and even in the best case scenario where both of them had shipped, let's say back in September, I don't I didn't anticipate switching right away just because. Dropbox that 
the, that role in my life is so important that it's not something you undertake lightly, right? It's so I, I do think maybe I still hope eventually that I will switch because it would be nice to not rely on a third party thing and no offense to the folks at Dropbox, but yeah, I'm not really super happy with a lot of their recent decisions. So it's, I, I still hope I will be able to switch and I'm lucky that everybody I collaborate uses Apple stuff. You know, I don't have a big, you know, <laughs> going back to the beginning of the show, it's not like there's a huge t- team here. But, you know, like Caleb Sexton, who edits the show, you know, we we bounce the files back and forth through Dropbox. Uh, he's working on a Mac. We could switch eventually, but for now, no, we're still using Dropbox just because it just works. And when something just works, I don't take it lightly to take it out. And again, it also comes into play with stuff like, hey, does everybody who I'm collaborating with, are they on Catalina? You know? Yeah. Yeah, it's what I noticed when I did the I did that thing from my YouTube trailer where I had a bunch of people send me clips, and these are really nerdy, techy people. And there was a lot of Google Drive. There was some Microsoft uh, Drive, probably more than I expected. There was a bunch of iCloud Drive, and that makes sense because a lot of people are very Apple centric. But I didn't see much Dropbox, and I would have imagined the Dropbox would have been a much higher percentage of the. Of the of the user base for what what I was asking, yeah, and it does you know it's taken ten years plus for it to really come true, but it all it comes back to that uh, supposed discussion between Steve Jobs and one of the Dropbox founders when they were you know somehow Steve Jobs got in contact with them I yeah. guess to put out feelers about maybe an acquisition, and he said you don't have a product you have a feature. Um, and, you know, that's Jobs being Jobs. Of course, you know, he's going to say something pithy like that to put the person he's negotiating with on their heels. You know, yes, it's, it's classic Jobs. But also classic Jobs, there's obviously a huge, very large kernel of truth in it where yeah. ultimately what do people want? They just want a folder that syncs, right? And you want, yeah. it, you want the reliability where you put, it in, you put it in and then you go to another device and it's there because it's synced. And the sync always works, and it's never it it doesn't corrupt things, and you don't wind up with uh, seven copies of the same thing yeah. named conflict copy one, conflict copy. Yes. You just want it to work. And the other thing is, and it's so nice about the Dropbox concept of a folder that syncs is you want this clarity of knowing what stuff is syncing and what stuff isn't, right? And so if you have yeah. this thing that you know you don't want to sync. If it's not in your Dropbox folder, then it isn't syncing, right? And, you know, iCloud folder, iCloud Drive sort of has, uh, you know, a lot of that, right? Like, you know when something, when you're in the Finder, you know if it's in iCloud or not, right? And one of the things I did with Dropbox is for all the my old vector videos, those that was uh, gigabytes and gigabytes of data, and I just check the box that said, don't keep this folder locally. And then it would stay all on Dropbox and it wouldn't clog up my Mac. And there's just a lot of features they've built up over time that I think it'll take a while for iCloud to catch up on. Yeah. Uh, here's a new question. Uh, Mark Plus asks, another good question. We're never going to get through all the good questions. These are This is great, but we can try. Are you worried that more and more stuff on the iPad will require an external keyboard and or tracking device? I already have two things on my list. Using Spotlight while in an app requires an external keyboard. To some websites using drag and drop require a mouse slash trackpad. Uh, I'll let you go first. Yeah, so this is to me the big balancing act. And I think it was a huge contention issue within Apple as well for a long time. And that probably explains 
the whole the whole evolution of iPad to some degree is that a lot of people believe like that Steve Jobs' vision this was the most important product Apple ever made. It was a computer for everyone else. You had your Macs, but there were a bunch of people for whom the Mac was still inaccessible and unapproachable and off-putting and scary. And this was a computer that anybody from you know a two years old to a hundred years old could pick up immediately use for the first time. And they didn't want to lose that. But at the same time, you had a bunch of really vocal nerds who love Apple products and were used to having every Apple product made for them who just felt like it was limiting, that it didn't do what they want. They wanted to switch to it, but it didn't do every single traditional computing thing that they did. And it reminded me of the early Macs where like Jobs very deliberately didn't put, or at least anecdotally, didn't put arrow keys or a terminal right. because he wanted people to acclimatize themselves to the mouse. But over time, you look down now, every Mac has terminal and arrow keys. And I feel that very similarly with the iPad, that it should never lose what makes it the most accessible computing platform that we've seen yet. That, And I think the 10.2-inch iPad is a great symbol of that. If you want it, you can just get it for 300 and whatever, 29 bucks, and it, touch it and use it, and it's great for like a computer for everybody. But I think if if they want it to progress and they do want to have it docked, and even if it's a small percentage, it's a very passionate, very vocal percentage, if you allow it to be docked, you then have to make it a first-class citizen. And it's got to have keyboard and, and mouse support, the equal of any traditional computer. It's got to have functional arrow keys and a functional terminal. And I think that's what they're putting the final steps on now. Yeah, and Apple has emphasized both, uh, not so much in the product marketing, but in the discussions I've had with them, you know, after the iPad Pro announcement mm-hmm. and the announcement at least of the magic keyboard for iPad Pro, uh, they emphasize over and over and over again that iPad remains a touched first touch first yeah. platform. And I I don't think that's BS. I think it's true. Spotlight not being accessible while you're in an app, that is true, but I don't know how you would do it, right? That there's all they've already overloaded all the edges of the screen, right? Yes. You pull down from the top and you get notification center. Top corner is, is I mean, they've already overloaded the top with control center and notification center. So yeah. I can't see adding a third one for the other corner, you know. I you know, I don't know what the you know. I don't. It's a good example of something that's better with a keyboard than without on an iPad, but I don't think it's any in any way spiteful towards the. It's like a right mouse click, you know. Like yeah. they didn't used to have one, so you couldn't access all these convenient things, and yeah. it, because of a limitation of a one button interface, then they have like two buttons, and now they have a limitation. They had a limitation of a directly manipulable gross gesture interface, and the keyboard allows them to shortcut it or or like warp tunnel through it on occasion. Yeah, and I think your comparison to the original Macintosh not having arrow keys and not having a text mode was good, and it was sort of like they were half right, half wrong. I think the arrow yeah. keys thing they were definitely wrong about. That also feels like it might have been more personally Steve Jobsy, yes. um, you know. And they obviously relented on that, and very few people even remember having seeing a Macintosh keyboard that didn't have arrow keys. I mean, and again, <laughs> thinking about how much time I personally complained about the. The full height left and right arrow yes. keys on like three years worth of MacBook keyboards and and the amount of time I've congratulated Apple on going back to the upside down T of yeah. arrow key arrangement. It is an interesting thought to think, well, what if what if they went back to the nineteen eighty four layout where there are no <laughs> arrow keys? Huh? How do you like that? How do you like that? Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> 
I do think, though, that the no text mode on the original Macintosh was absolutely key. And if they had added it, I think it would have been devastating to the uh, uh, taking root of an actual third party ecosystem of, you know, okay, you want to write, you want to port your spreadsheet to the Mac, you've got to do a Mac version. You cannot just take the text version that you're running on the Apple II or on uh, IBM PCs and just have it run in text mode on the Mac. You've got to, to some degree, and you know, in 1984, 85, 86, some developers were better than others at getting what a real Mac app was. And again, <laughs> compared to what we complain about today, you know, with Electron apps and stuff, some of the apps yeah. from like 1985... <laughs> You know, their idea of a Mac version was was a real stretch. But yes. for the most part, people got it. And the fact that it wasn't even there as an option to like, oh, we'll just reboot your Mac and hold down the option key and it opens in text mode like an Apple II really, <laughs> really might have, I think, made the GUI era be stillborn. You know, that yep. Apple would have had their apps, but everybody else just ported their Apple II versions and told you to reboot with the option key down or something. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, we saw that with Windows. I mean, Microsoft took. Yeah, there were those facetious articles where, like, I, I don't know what, but they said, like, you know, this proves that Microsoft was right. And I think, you know, in large part, no, the dominance of the iPad in the market shows that it was like Steve Jobs and Apple were exactly right about what the large market wanted. But Microsoft understood what the like the tech nerd market wanted. Uh, but the way they implemented it, starting it with Windows and bringing it down and having the keyboard and mouse there immediately, they're they're still struggling to be fully touch-based. They're still working on getting there, where Apple is now just working on adding functionality. And I think that's that's a better position for Apple to be in. Yeah, and it, it, it's very Microsoftian. It's in their DNA. I mean, I was doing nerdy you know, college student internships in the early 90s, you know, uh, working in the IT department you know, over the summer, servicing PCs and an awful lot of the software, even if they were booting into windows, an awful lot of the software back then was still DOS software that just ran in a window. Um, Yeah. For a long, long time. Yeah. A long, long time. Uh, Let's see. Next question. New. Ooh, it's a good question. Tom Woodsworth asks new MacBook air versus Mac mini for a novice audio podcast work. Any Mac buying advice really? On the surface, I want to say that's almost like a silly question. Like, do you need a portable or not? But maybe going deeper, I I feel that there is something uh, there is something good about a desktop that's a desktop. I have a friend who just bought a MacBook uh, Mac Mini, uh, hadn't had a desktop in a while, and he's setting up, you know. <laughs> Re- reinvesting in his home office for obvious reasons. And he's like, you know what? I forgot how nice it is to have a desktop. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, it, it depends what you want to do. How much do you really need to move your computer? I know that I'd sounds also argue stupid. that it's like, if you're more technical, the Mac Mini, will ha- it has a lot of benefits. You do have to add a mouse and a keyboard and a, a display, which adds to the price of the Mac Mini, and it all comes included in the MacBook Air. But you don't have Y-class processors. You have the full U-class processors. They're older. They're 8th generation, not 10th generation. But you have a ton of ports. You have a ton of capability, uh, a ton of storage. It just has... If you intend to grow, it has a lot of, and you're technically minded, it has a lot more opportunity for you to grow than an air. An air is almost like a, an all-in-one solution. Like, would you get a Keurig or an espresso machine? Sort of work on it that way. 
here's a question I have. This is not from anybody who read who's who's submitted it, but maybe somebody did, but I didn't get to it yet. I'm, I'm looking at the list here, but here, I have a question for you. What do you think of the theory that multiple people have espoused? But I'll, I'll mention that the first person I heard espouse it was our mutual friend Dave Whiskus, who I'll stop pretending. I don't know <laughs> um, that if if and when Apple announces that the Mac is transitioning to ARM, that the iPad Pro might be the the developer machine, and that you know perhaps this June Apple might say, "Okay, we're moving the Mac to ARM starting next year. We're announcing it now, so developers can Mac developers can can." build all their software to be fat binaries for Intel and ARM. And to test them, you can now, boot, you know, you can download a developer thing and if you're in the developer program and boot your iPad Pro into Mac OS X for ARM. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. I think especially if we see a new Apple TV that has the USB-C port unhidden, like it like it was the previous generation, then you have the the sort of MacBook equivalent and the sort of Mac Mini equivalent, and you just download a developer-specific a OS, put it, flash it onto the machine, and it seems far more elegant than making a developer-only machine like they did with the Marklar, the, the Intel Mac transition. Yeah, I don't want to rule it out. Uh, it's an intriguing idea, and I feel like it's a good—it's good food for thought because I can't—I can't rule it out. It seems like it's—it is possible, but then there's a bunch of reasons where I think, eh, no, I, I don't know. I—I I, I kind of feel like it's less technical. Like technically, I don't know that there's anything that would prevent them from doing it, and more philosophical, where that in Apple's mind, collective corporate mind, uh, iPads and Macs are not anywhere neat. They're, they're different beasts and yes. never the twain shall meet, you know? So I don't know. And again, and there's, and then there's little things like, even if it's just a developer thing. And for those who don't remember when Apple announced the switch from PowerPC to Intel in, I believe, 2005, the first machines came out in early 2006, ahead of schedule. It was a bunch of what were then renamed from the PowerBook to MacBooks. Yeah. A, I think they, they just wanted to change the name. B, uh, the Power and PowerBooks ostensibly was for PowerPC. Yeah. And, and right after WWDC 2005, they announced these developer dev kits, and they were, uh, from the outside, they looked like Power Macs in aluminum, you know, the aluminum Power Mac towers. And then inside it was just like a bog standard PC and a setup that Apple had, you know, vetted as, you know, yeah. sort of like the first Hackintosh, really. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was like absolutely. an officially sanctioned Hackintosh. They didn't sell them at all. They only leased them or something to developers. And then as soon as the developer transition was over, I wanted them back. And so instead of doing that, and the scale was different, right? The number of Mac developers who needed dev kits in 2005 pales in comparison to the amount of developers who might need it now. There's yeah. just, even though it's a Mac thing only, it's, you know, with Catalyst, you know, raising the interest in uh, previously not Mac developers who were only writing for iOS, writing stuff for the Mac, it's just, there's just, uh, bigger number of them if you could just say just buy an ipad pro and download this developer profile from our website and you can reboot in 
you know, a special version of Catalina or I guess whatever 10.16 is or something like that. I get it. But then on the other hand, it just would be weird that you have this screen that you know is a touchscreen, but it doesn't work as a touchscreen when you're booted into the Mac. And then, of course, it's going to make it people out there, you know, if somebody wants to jump into the podcast and say, ah, but doesn't that mean maybe 10.16 will add touchscreen support to Mac OS? Well, they're not going to introduce that in... uh, at WWDC a year ahead of the actual machines that would support it. And and then there would be, would there be a long-term uh, expectation that even after the developer transition is over, that iPad Pros are dual-boot machines that you can choose to boot into Mac OS X? Yeah. Or would it go back to iPad only? But then everybody would think, well, wait, I want, I know it can because you let me do it over the summer and the developer transition. Let me reboot this thing into Mac OS now. <laughs> yeah, no, very fair. So, I, you know, I have mixed feelings about it. I don't know. I could see it, but I could not see it. I don't know. Yeah, the question is, if they don't go that route, what do they do? Do they make right. a sort of a, a simple clamshell that developers can pick up and return later at some point? But the quantity that they would probably want for the developer community now, they used to have to call people and ask them to come to WWDC, and now they have to have a lottery <laughs> to try uh, to pick the few that can go. Yeah. The other technical like, thing is RAM, where... The, yes. the new 2018, or not 2018, 2020 iPad Pros have six gigabytes of RAM. The 2018 iPad Pros only had four gigabytes, except oddly, the asterisk that goes next to the one terabyte storage module, which yeah. also had six yeah, gigabytes. Yeah, they needed it to access the greater storage. <laughs> right. They needed more, more RAM to access the, the higher amount of storage. Yeah. Uh, the, the lowest amount of RAM you can buy on any Mac today is eight gigabytes. Uh, yeah. and is six gigabytes, is that, is it prohibitive from booting? You know, the, are the, no, it wouldn't prohibit it from booting. But if you're actually doing the development on the machine running Xcode, which isn't really known for, you know, being yes. resource light, uh, I don't know, you know. That's also uh, a greater question for iPad Pro in general, because, you know, people are trying to bring Photoshop to it and, the RAM is a limitation the way it was in ancient computing times. And I think as we get more sophisticated software, more more sophisticated iPads are going to have to look at the difference, the disparity in RAM levels between the Mac and the iPad. Uh, yeah, so I don't know. Uh, so my interceding question, ultimately, my answer is, I don't know. Maybe I could see it, but let's see. Um Dave asks, this is a good question, the new Magic Keyboard doesn't appear to fold back on itself like the Magic Keyboard Folio does. In other words, the way you can—it's like a book that you can open all the way around to hold single panel. This could have significant usage implications because it means you have to remove the iPad each time you use it in tablet mode. It will be two pieces rather than one. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think that I think it's pretty clear that the that a significant difference between again not having touched the Magic Keyboard in person it's clearly more than just a better smart keyboard cover the smart keyboard cover is sort of like a little middle ground between a regular ipad cover and well why not put a keyboard on the cover while we're at it right and the magic keyboard is way more of a hey we're turning your ipad pro into a laptop when you when it's in this thing Uh, more like a dock yeah, it really is more like a dock. 
And again, can't judge it personally because we haven't touched it, but at least in mo- many of the Apple shots of the thing, their, their commer- minute-long commercial showing people using it and their introduction, they show people removing it with one hand and that, yeah. the, that the cantilevered back stays more or less where it was when you take it off. And so that the magnets that hold it in place are somehow strong enough to keep it suspended and keep it sturdy enough to actually use it on your lap, literally as a laptop, and yet are convenient enough that you can take it off with one hand. But I think that the basic idea is that for however many people use the smart keyboard cover folded over and just leave the iPad in it when they're using it as a handheld tablet without using the keyboard, you're not supposed to, you're not may not even be able to do that with the magic keyboard. There's no way there's no way that I in fact I know they even tell you that the that the thing doesn't fold back that far. Yeah, and and it kind of bugs me the way the current one does. Like it, it is convenient, but it covers the camera, so if you're just folding yeah. it back and they want to take a photo, you can't. And also now they have the keys on the outside instead of the inside. And it feels like I'm touching bubble wrap and I just want to keep like it's distracting almost when I have my hands on it. So I mostly take it off now when I want to use it like a tablet, and then I remark about how light it is each time. Yeah. And it does sort of take a little bit of the vibe off the convertible nature of it. Um but I'm like you, I'm waiting to see it. All the videos, especially that video of Craig, he comes up and slaps it down like a dock and then pulls it off like a dock. Yeah. Uh, he's not yeah. flipping it around at all. Yes. Yeah. I should say that that among the videos was was Craig Federighi using it. So I'm optimistic that they've designed it and that, that you know, and so the, the scenario where you wouldn't want to use it is somewhere where you don't want to leave the keyboard behind. Right? Yeah. Like, I, I don't know what that scenario would be, but you're not going to be sitting... You're not going to be sitting in the library, take it off and walk around to another section of the library and leave the keyboard behind unless you trust that your keyboard's going to stay there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or you can just fold it flat and, and take the whole thing like a book that yeah. does fold closed. Yeah. Daryl Baxter asks, now that trackpad support is on iPad, do you see a scenario where there could be an Xcode for iPad, especially to simulate tests and compile apps natively? I think their question with XPad for iPad, Xcode for iPad is the same as Adobe's with Photoshop for iPad. And that is, what, what is the important set of features that we can deliver right. to the iPad given its interactive model and its constraints, like things like RAM? And once they determine that, like, then I think that we'll see it. It's just a question of that. Apple is like one of those companies that don't, they don't show their work. They measure 99 times and then cut once. And I think they're still in those, in that measurement phase. Yeah. I almost feel that trackpad support, even though it's welcome and I feel like I'm so addicted to it already and it's great for text editing and various and other things. It certainly helps and what doesn't hurt, but I don't think that that's what's kept it from being there until now. I'm a little surprised that we're 10 years into iPad and we still don't have something whether they call it xcode or not you know like they call imovie imovie whether it's on the mac or the ipad even though it's clearly not the same app and it's more meant for touch and i'm with you that i don't think we ever would in fact you couldn't it's just xcode does so many low-level developer file system type things that you know with build scripts and stuff that you it just doesn't even make any technical sense to have the whole of xcode on ipad it would be some native to iPad version of it, whether they call it Xcode or not. But something, you know, as as Daryl asks here, something that you can simulate, yeah. test, and compile. More than playgrounds. Would, yeah, more than playgrounds. I, I, I feel like it has to happen eventually, but then on the other hand, yeah. if it has to happen eventually, why hasn't it happened in 10 years? It's a very long time for a very capable computing platform to not be able to 
create but everything takes so long on the ipad and i think that's yeah. mainly because there was that disagreement about its nature but also because the iphone is still the most fate like it has to be just based on earnings it, it gets the majority of resources and it, yeah. when you think about how long it took just for trackpad support it was 10 years right so i can i can understand i understand it but i can see how xcode can take that long uh, general question discussion about this is from David Eli about quote unquote serious iPad software. What's the landscape looks like? Uh, examples of good pro apps. He's been using Ferrite exclusively to record and edit yeah. spoken audio. I know I've heard a lot of things about Ferrite. I know Jason Snell uses it. Um, that seems like a like a shining example of terrific pro software. Uh, I certainly know some of the pencil oriented drawing software is tremendous yeah. on ipad yeah i mean star trek is famously rob mccollum does star trek uh discovery on an ipad hmm. well there you and, go and uh, jonathan morrison has done whole like, he's edited on ipod touch so i mean he's the extreme example but he's edited serenity caldwell used to be a better editor on the ipad than i ever was in final cut pro just because she's a classically you know film trained editor yeah. yeah uh it's a mixed bag you know and i know that i raised some attention at the 10th anniversary of the iPad for complaining about the state of iPad software and the state of the iPad multitasking interface. It's a mixed bag to me. I mean, there's shining examples. It's, you know, it's it probably too long for this Q&A format. You probably need a whole show about it. But there's certainly some great examples. I think it's interesting. I, I still can't find a great text editing app. I use IA Writer when I do write on my iPad, which I like, but I don't love. And just some of the things that it just irk me is I still, it, it. I just find it so strange that there's no consistent way to close a document when you are. Yeah. And I get it that like Apple Notes is a great example. And that's the type of app that is great on iPhone and iPad where they don't, they're not files. There's no correlation to the file system. The notes are these abstract things that live in a library. And so you don't have to close them. But when you know you are working with files and you're, it's in Dropbox or iCloud Drive or something, uh, and you have a file and you're editing a file, there's no way to close it, it, yeah. it no consistent way to close it. And I don't, I, it, it leaves me, and I don't even think I'm being superstitious. It, if I'm going, to, I wrote it on my iPad, but I want to finish it on my Mac and BB edit. I don't want to leave it open on my iPad because I'm afraid that the iPad's going to wake up and then say, you know, here, let me just save it again. Yeah. <laughs> And well, lose. it's that thing that Marco mentioned a long time ago when his desire to not have settings led him to do so many backflips. It right. was worse than having settings. And I think Apple's desire to, I think they looked at a lot of the computer science things and saw them as artifacts that were too complicated for humans. But in their desire to avoid them, they ended up creating more complexity than less. Yeah. So I don't know. I feel like it's like a lot of it, it ties into the Xcode question at, of professional software on the iPad period, where even though it's 10 years old and it's phenomenally popular and phenomenally successful, it's still somehow a toddler, you know, yeah, like it's it ridiculously is, powerful too. Right. It's like a, a Kryptonian baby. Yes. <laughs> I was just going to say that it is, it's baby Superman. Yes. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's faster than the Mac, MacBook Pro. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't have a consistent way to close text files. Yeah, yes. <laughs> doesn't know how to talk yet. So I don't know. Uh, but I certainly think I certainly think that in addition to the fact that I absolutely love the trackpad mouse support that they just added in thirteen point four, love it just in and of itself, and the delightful feel and the 
everything and about they it. They didn't just port it. They didn't just take the Mac no. model and throw it on, slap it on yeah. the iPad. They really thought about it. It's also a tremendous uh, sign from the outside that inside Apple, they're taking this stuff seriously and they're really yes. thinking about it. So I'm optimistic. Uh, however pessimistic I am about the overall state right now, I'm more optimistic than I've been in years, many years about the going forward. For me, it was the iPad OS that was like the the big sea change, maybe even more than just the iPad Pro, because it signaled that once you put an OS label on it, they have to get up and present, like obviously not this year, but they have to get up and present every year. It can't be two or three years between significant iOS features, sorry, iPad, iPad features as a subset of iOS. Now it has to get its own segment every year, and that puts a pressure on them to level out the resources between the, the two devices. Yeah. I know you don't want to talk about yourself, Renee, but there's too many questions here that are about your... <laughs> Okay. Your professional move. Uh, I, Aaron Vegg has a good question. I'd like to know more about the timing of this move. Was it something you planned for a while or did this global pandemic force your hand? So it wasn't a result of the pandemic. I, I've been thinking about it for years. Like you and I have had discussions mm. about it going back years. Uh, you, me, and Ben Thompson, I think Whiskus as well at a Japanese uh, whiskey house in San Francisco yeah. is one of my most vivid memories. But it, it was just, it was a year after the future acquisition that I really started thinking about, you know, what's next for me? Am I going to do this for another 10 years? And once I decided probably not, I didn't think waiting would be an advantage. Yeah. Uh, I, I feel like it, the nature of this pandemic is anybody who makes any kind of change is going to be asked. Naturally so. Yes. Is it because of this or is it coincidence? And, you know. I, I actually I, gave him my notice well before any of this happened. It was like much earlier in the in the month. <laughs> Uh, what app, here's a question from Danius Blindness. What app would you like Apple to make first if it would start prioritizing first party app making again? I feel like, I don't know that they've stopped prioritizing first party app making again, but would I like, what app would I like Apple to make as a first party app? Hmm. I honestly, I'm drawing a blank in terms of. Yeah, same. Uh, yeah. I can't really. Think I think of they something. should just have a good base, like all baseline functionality should have a decent built-in app, and then leave a lot of space for developers on top of that. But don't have the don't have any functionality. I I would like them to get better at digital zoom um, because so many of the Android phones now not only have periscope lenses but really good digital zoom. And anyone who has like I have little god kids, but anyone with kids and they're running around, a, maybe not now, running around a field, you know, you know how valuable that zoom can be. And I think they've got smart HDR now and Google's Zoom technology is based off of their uh, their HDR plus technology and their, I forget the other one they're using, but I would love Apple to just round out the feature set more than make new apps. Yeah, I would say the same thing. I, I really do. I, I would, I would, uh, and I mentioned this on my last show with Panzerino, but um, I really do think there's an opportunity here if the lack of collaboration between Apple's teams that they're used to can't happen for an extended period of time here with this stay-at-home stuff, that there's an opportunity here to rejigger priorities and turn this into a Snow Leopard-style bug fix year. Because that's the sort of thing I feel like engineers can work on in in, in isolation a little bit more. Almost the opposite of working on new front-end first party apps is work at the other end, work at the foundation and clean up some things that have long needed cleaning up. Yeah. All right. Here's a question from Ian. I hope I'm getting your last name right. Umatio. 
But if it's not, I'm sorry, Ian. I'm, I know I'm pronouncing Ian right. If ARM Macs are coming in 2021, this is a great question. Should both casual users and power users be worried about potentially buying the last set of Intel Macs? I'm wanting to upgrade my old MacBook Pro, but I'm worried about being in the same spot as the person who bought a PowerBook G4 in 2005. Yeah, so my, my thing with this is, uh, you know, it's, it, I go back to Don Melton where he says, you know, I, I never, Gramps never buys Rev A boards. Um, and it's it's sort of like any bit of technology. There's going to be early adopters who just want to have it. They want to have the latest thing right away. But for many people, I would typically advise wait a year, wait two years for everything to shake out. Mm-hmm. And then you're not waiting, when's my software going to be ported? And this is a little bit kludgy and Apple needs to fix this. And wow, this is buggy. And I think when you look at it from that lens, that those, those it's the same with 5G. Like everyone was complaining last year Apple didn't have 5G when technology was terrible. And even this year, if you don't get it, it's not like, like these are first-generation devices. It's going to be two or three years before they, they have really good quality stuff. Just buy your Mac when you need it and then be super happy and wait until you need the next thing. But don't feel like in a rush to switch to base your purchases on on maybe future product developments. Yeah, and I would say the same thing, where I would be more, I know that as a tech podcast, the enthusiasm is all about the new thing, and I'm very excited about the potential of ARM Macs, but I would honestly say that it's the opposite, that you should feel more confident that the the last round of Intel Macs, if this is it, or if there's another, is almost certainly going to be the best round of Intel Macs they've ever made. And and that's always the case. There's a term for it, and I'm going to forget it. But I know, uh, I believe Horace Deju has talked about this repeatedly, uh, and a couple other analysts have. But that's it's the way that disruptions happen. Like uh, a big one was the move in the airline industry from propeller-based passenger planes to jet planes, and the last round of propeller-based. Wo- based ones was way better than the first round of jet ones. They were quieter and smoother and just had these phenomenal interiors. They were the best planes the airline industry had ever made. And of course, eventually they got, it it seems ridiculous now to think of a giant passenger plane with propellers instead of jet engines. Um, it's like a transition tax. Yeah, there, it. I, and if you miss the first, if you're going to miss a round of ARM-based Macs, the first round is the one to miss. That's guaranteed, yeah. you know. And that if you buy, if you need a new computer now, I wouldn't hesitate. The only, the only MacBook I wouldn't recommend right now is the 13-inch MacBook Pro because it yeah. seems, it just seems, is crying out for a. A replacement with the new keyboard and probably a yeah. in the way that the 15 inch went to 16 by just making this screen go closer to the edges without increasing the footprint something like that to go to 14 inches which matches with the rumors that there's probably going to be an update to the 13 inch macbook pro called a 14 inch macbook pro with a new keyboard and etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah Probably soon. I would wait for that. But if you're in the market for a MacBook Air or a 16-inch MacBook Pro, I would buy right now if you yes. need one. And yeah, absolutely. And sure, there might be ARM ones that come out next year, and there might be some amazing things about them. But you you will be fully supported for years to come. And then when you do update, you'll be going to the second or third generation ARM yeah. ones, and there, it'll just be a silly, silly, fantastic upgrade for you. So. I would honestly think I'd ask the question around, should you be afraid of the first round of ARM-based uh, Macs? Not yeah. afraid of the last round of Intels. Yeah, no, absolutely. 
Here's one. Uh, now that we're all furiously washing our hands with soap for 20 seconds multiple times a day, what's your routine to stop your hands from cracking into a million pieces? I don't have a secret. I don't know what I'm doing right. I haven't been using any like moisturizer or anything, but my hands are holding up well, even though I, I all joking and theme song gags aside, I'm washing my hands like a fiend. And somehow, yeah. I think perhaps because the weather's warming up here and it's not coming in the middle of winter when I typically suffer from dry hands. Um, I don't have a Oliver Thomas asked that. I don't, I don't have a secret for you, but if you do have the no, problem, I, I. I'd invest some, some moisturizer. Yeah. Uh, uh, are you going to be doing a blog, Renee? Jared Blundy wants to ask in addition to your switch to indie. So I think I will be just because, you know, I've, I spent the last 10 years blogging and it's in my bones and I think I would not be able to not do it. So the way I set up ReneeRitchie.net, it, it it works as a blog. Right now I've only posted the one video that I've done, but uh, it's and I've, I've gotten the habit of Twitter blogging now too. And I think a lot of us do that. We just see something and we tweet it. Where in the old days we would have blogged it. But I, I like the idea of not giving all my content to Twitter, especially because I don't trust their management as much as I used to. Not that I ever did, but I, I've gone to the realization that I can't necessarily trust the way they run that platform. So the idea to me eventually will be anything that I would normally tweet, I would do as a small blog post instead. Hmm. And I'll just see how, how my time goes and whether I can do that. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. I guess that's it. I, I my, my thanks to everybody who asked these questions. They're great. I wish we could have gotten to more of them, but we've already filled up more than our, our allotted time. Um, Right now, it's very easy to tell people where to get their Renee Ritchie. You go to YouTube slash Renee Ritchie and on Twitter, Renee Ritchie, and that's it. Uh, I'm very happy for you, Renee. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your support over all the years. It's meant a lot to me. Yeah, well, and you know, I, I doubt it's the last we'll hear from you. Right, anyway, yeah. any, any idea? Do you know, are, are the YouTube channel, uh, how, how live are the subscriptions? Like how many people have- I think they're real time. How many how many subscriptions are you up to on your new channel? Let's look. Um, I, it's loading, and I think we're about nine hours since you announced it. It looks like about eleven and a half thousand. Oh my god, that's fantastic! You're getting over a thousand yeah. an hour. Well, eleven point nine thousand. It just refreshed. Awesome. Yeah. Well, my thanks to you. Uh, I'm very happy for you. I think it's going to be a great success. Um, oh, thank you so much. Uh, I'm sure you'll be back on the show sometime soon. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. 